Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Is that the sound of you rubbing your hands together? It was, yeah. In the sort of fiendish way? It's a, it's a Mayo family thing, actually. Is it? Yeah, and the, the knuckle cracking. Oh, yeah. That's that's a family thing as yeah. well. My father did it, and my uncle did it, and I now notice that my son, son child two, no child three, son two, does this all does this all the time. And my guess is, if you if I ever saw some movie footage of some long distant ancestor, which obviously I won't because there weren't movies, it's probably one of those things that you just hand down from generation to generation. The knuckle cracking thing. This is a, a slightly a serious question. Is there any truth in the don't do that, it'll give you arthritis? But everyone has always said it, uh, and as far as I know, it's not true. Okay, because I say it to my kids who do it all the time, and uh, they go, that's not true, Dad, I looked it up on Wikipedia. I think... I think it's it's air it's popping basically it's air popping into joints and some people think it does but I you know as far if, as, as if far there as is I'm anyone aware. listening who is like a professor of air poppingology or something who actually can give us a definitive answer on whether or not cracking your knuckles well I, here's what I want I want a really authoritative email a consultant maybe. a consultant yeah some, a consultant or higher with loads what's of higher than a consultant. I don't know. Senior consultant. Senior consultant. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I want loads of, you know... I don't I mean, want a junior consultant. Loads of loads of letters after your name, and I want the name to sound very imposing. Yeah. And I want a definitive statement that says, you should not do this. It is bad for your knuckles. Or... It is bad for... No, no, no. I, this is what I want. I want a thing that says that I can then just go to the kids. There. See? See? Mr. Professor of Air Poppingology... I don't want Or that. Mrs. Professor about air poppingology. Or Ms. Or Ms. You know, says that it's very, very I don't bad. want that. What I, you want is one that says it's perfectly fine. I just want someone who could just say, this is the truth. This is what science tells us, and this is what we learn. Well, truth is a relative thing, Simon, in today's world. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, so we just, so if there is, what would this be? This would be a professor, it's got to be some, I don't know, biology? No. Well, is there a what it was hand? joints, joints, joints and bones? Who who's a bone specialist? The bone collector, chiropractor. Do you want, no, we bone. don't want. No, we don't want them. We want, no, I don't think so. I don't no. think we want them. You want professor of bones, but it's actually the thing that you're doing is not the bones. It's the bit between the bones. It's the cartilage. You want a professor of cartilage, don't yeah. you? Professor cartilage in the dining room with the candlestick. <laughs> yes. Four o'clock. Can we, can we do that? Yeah, okay. Someone will know. And I don't want a theory. I don't no, want... No, no, no. No, I want a definitive answer. I want something that sounds very, very authoritative. But you, but what you're doing is you're prejudging the research. You're saying, here's the conclusion you need to reach. No, okay, that's me being... I, I, I said what I would like the conclusion right, to be okay. is this, but I understand that it may not be true. I mean, it is. it has always been the case that in the past, when the kids have gone... Not that's not true, Dad. Wiki says otherwise. They're right. Yeah. But I, I mean, it would be lovely for once to be on the on the right side of the bit. But I actually would genuinely like to know because every time they do it, not only does it make me wince, but it makes me think you're doing your fingers terrible damage. The thing about the Mayo family habit of that yeah. is I can't think that that does anyone any harm. It might give you calluses on your, you know, on your on your hands, but then but then that's fine. Yeah, I would think that's. I don't think the worst any... thing is going to happen is calluses, right? It's flaky skin. If I had if I had leprosy or something like that, it would spread that to other people who were underneath my hands. <laughs> no. okay. I got eczema. Does that count? 
Have you got eczema on your hands? I always used to, yeah. But so what stopped it? Well, I rubbed it all off because I was doing this <laughs> all the time. Leave a little trail everywhere I go. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. It is. This, this is like a, a medical podcast. It is, yeah. um, How's so, your tinnitus? I, I should warn you, by the way, yeah. that there is a danger I'm going to fall asleep again in the show. Really? Yeah, because I had another bad night last night. So With the dog this time? Well, no, what happened was child one went to Berlin, child two was coming back from work, and child three was staying up, you know, woke up in the middle of the night to watch the, a streaming of something that was coming from America, which you had to be up at three o'clock. So there was a lot of activity in the house, and I just reacted to that. What was, was, what was streaming at three o'clock in the morning? Um, he did tell me. Was it an episode of something? It was an episode of something. It wasn't like breaking news or something? No, 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 he wasn't doing that. Anyway, so a lot, anyway, so okay, a lot of buzzy stuff going. A lot of buzzy stuff going. A lot of stuff happening in the house. I wake up. Yeah. So and then, Can you need, then not get back to sleep? No, so you just need to be aware... Constantly okay. look up at me. You've just done the thing. You've just done the, you know, you, you're, hot. you're airing your jump. Are you having hot flushes? No, it's, I've got the wrong Are you going on. through what is now referred to as the manopause? No, it's 17 degrees outside. So therefore it's spring and I'm wearing a winter jumper. So it's it's 17 degrees. I've got a Ramones t-shirt on underneath. So I might just wear that. No, it's not, hang on, but it's 17 degrees. I've been outside and I have no There's idea. There's a heat wave on the way. Is there? On with the show. Here we go. Okay. Um, oh, you mean on with the podcast or you mean on with the show? No, podcast. Well, we haven't done anything really other than natter about... Medical ailments. Yeah, this is a podcast extra, so we can do whatever we want. Okay. Uh, but Jenny has sent in an email. It's Hello, Jenny. Email. This is Jenny Sean, possibly, or Sean. Dear Mega Mega and White Thing, this week, with its grey skies and cold weather, felt particularly draining. At six o'clock on Sunday, after a long week of childcare, I was approaching the anarchy hour. Which I, I like this. This is the hour of dinners, baths and beds. The two-month-old had refused naps all day. The three-year-old had casually wet herself. <laughs> I took this moment to stomp off to the corner shop, taking my newly downloaded podcast with me, which is about the closest thing I get to me time at the moment. And as the podcast began with your slowed-down, drunken chat, everything was better. This is from last week, yes. obviously. I was laughing out loud on the street, especially at the slurred rendition of Oh Danny Boyle. I came back home grinning and refreshed. I played it to my husband. He was also instantly healed, even though the three-year-old took that moment to knock her drink over the clothes. We'd only just finished dressing her yeah. in, in the first place. Be right. Thank you again to the church for being there when we needed you. Uh, I'm going to save those few minutes and play them next time as a meltdown over the wrong coloured cup or a poo explosion, requiring a full change of clothes for everyone involved. <laughs> Tinkety tonk indeed, says Jenny. Uh, anyway, like the poo explosion. Yes, yeah, a poo explosion. So <laughs> that we had so many people have commented about the um, the slowed down but pitched the same clip from last week yes. that we're going to play a little bit again, but in the main body of the okay. show because in this the podcast exclusive zone, mm -hmm. uh, just listened to by the hardcore. Yes, the rest of the, the rest of the kind of like the the lily livered listener <laughs> that just chances on us. What shall I just a casual listener? Casual. Non-committed list yes. hasn't actually heard. A floating voter, I think you call them. Well, that makes them. Well, it makes them sound after poo explosion. It makes it sound worse <laughs> than it is, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to we'll play a little bit more about that in the in the in the kind of wishy-washy bit of the show. Okay. What are you calling the show? The vanilla bit. Yeah. Okay. A little bit of that. Now, this might be the final episode in a long-running story. Unlikely. Uh, it's sent from Jonathan Okwe Pearson. Okay. Dear alternative... Who is whom? Uh, you're about to find who? out. Well, B-A-M-A-P-G-C uh, and N-P-Q-M-L. N-P-Q-M-L. Just being checked out now. N -P -Q -M -L. By this 
well-oiled machine that we have. Yes, it is. In the show. NP. I mean, people say chaos. Finally, chaos? It's a well-oiled machine. Dear, dear alternative, in fact, have you ever wondered about those people who enter and leave your lives too quickly? Do you ever think, I could be really good friends with that person, but the time and tide weren't right to exchange numbers? It is with this vein I write in response to a correspondence from Meredith and Tarek, who told of their Wittertainy in the wild experience on the evening train from Newcastle to London. This has been going on for the last... Oh, yes, we've heard from every single carriage member. To recap, Meredith and Tarek were in the... (laughs) This is like previously on (laughs) entertainment. Meredith and Tarek were in the quiet coach, organising the podcast for the journey. The person sitting opposite chirped up with hello to Jason Isaacs. Meredith and Tarek then mentioned how the chap, knowing he had the authority of the church behind him, leant over to another passenger who was talking loudly on the phone and shushed him. I was listening to this anecdote returning from a weekend in Manchester with my good lady wife when she said... That sounds like something you'd do. Well, <laughs> that is exactly what I would do because, in fact, that is exactly what I did do. I was indeed that man sitting opposite Meredith and Tarek, so that makes him <laughs> sitting opposite from the guy. This is brilliant. This Although, is now everyone. Everyone in the carriage. Although I wouldn't consider the action either heroic or charitable, as Meredith so kindly put it, I can confirm that I did indeed tell the gentleman that loud conversations were unwelcome in Coach B. And I suppose in hindsight, it was the power of the church that spurred me on. Interestingly, before this, we did have a brief to and fro about our experiences with the flagship film show, especially when Meredith revealed that she had been mentioned on the programme. I think I may have bowed or blushed or both. As the conversation flowed, I remember thinking that these were clearly people I could spend time with. Cinema trips, weekends away, blue... (laughs) Blue chip folk, but due to combined British sensibilities and the uh, the perimeters of a quiet coach, we fell into a satisfied silence, knowing that there was so much still to say, but not the space to say it. <laughs> I promised myself I would get in touch with the show to break my duck, get a mention, and cite my new mates. It seems I was beaten to it. I can confirm that the film I watched on my generic device was Deadpool. I'm a teacher and head up a media studies department at a large high school not a priest or a pipe smoker. And while Meredith deduced that she thought I lived in London, in fact, I live in Newcastle, and my wife and I would love to take Meredith Meredith's kind offer to meet in the pub and talk about all matters film and possibly open up the invitation to other Geordie members of the church. Anyway, if you could pass my details on to Meredith and Tarek, thank them for getting in touch with their invitation. I will keep you informed of our blossoming friendship. Well, we don't actually... Uh, still have that email, but if you get back in touch, we will pass on the details. Yes. It sounds as though we were a little bit casual and we lost it, although that's I'm sure that's not true. There's probably data protection or something like that. Oh, is that what it is? What, anyway, we have to delete emails after seven days or they, so. they self-destruct. I think, okay, fine. <laughs> so if you get back in touch... Did the Russians hack them? Is that what happened? I think so, but then leaked to the wrong side. I see. Okay. I didn't know. So uh, Jonathan Okwe Pearson... Uh, the qualifications BA, MA, PGCE and NPQML, which, which is... Which is? Yeah, I know the postgraduate certificate of education because I was going to get one of them. What? National professional qualification for middle leadership. I don't want. What is that? Who wants middle leadership? I want to be top leadership. So middle. What is that though? Middle leadership. It means leading your middle. It means that you can lead middle-ranking people. (laughs) Who wants to do that? That's like that's like so basically like Robin. Well, I guess no, I don't think so because he 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 leads. Middle-ranking people. difficult people. Oh, he's a senior leader, apparently. Anyway, so I think we've heard from everyone in that coach. That story is kind of, that must be That must be it. You know what? We'll hear from the guard next. Yeah. I reckon they're all going to set up a commune and they're all going to live together. 
probably. All, in Newcastle? All of those guys, yeah. OK. But we are going to put them in touch. As we are going to be as good as our word. Well, if they get back in touch, I mean, it won't be us. It'll be Robin that has to come in on his day off. That's right, because basically the production staff have nothing else to do. I mean, this show runs itself, doesn't it? Robin just opens... It's a well-oiled machine. It is a well-oiled machine. People say chaos. Chaos! I hear birds twittering. No, you don't. There's the threat... I hear the threat of wild birds. No, 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 no. no. We, 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 you and I had a discussion before we, before the, the show started, which was that it will be good for everyone's health to step away from certain matters. We did, and I, I agree with you. But the best thing, so the best. What have we learned so far? We've learned that poo explosion is probably a, a very, word. very good word. Yes. Look out, everyone. Take cover. There's a poo explosion coming. coming. Uh, so the show is going to be a very good show. We've got Keanu Reeves, and we've also got Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. And listeners to the podcast will get the full version of Barry Jenkins. Uh, the kind of in the flabby bit in the, the in the for the part timers. Right. They get a slightly edited version of Barry. Okay. But uh, but everyone gets all of Kananunu. Yeah, he's there in, in all his glory, and he's great fun. You loved him, didn't you? I did. I loved him more than the film. But anyway, we can talk about that. <laughs> I think you're not alone in that. A little bit later, because here comes the show. Just listening to that conversation about MBEs yes. and so on, if you were to be offered one... Which will never happen. But if you were, yes. would you accept it? Or would you... Well, uh, I think, I, I think the, the, the question is not just hypothetical, but impossible. So, so obviously, no. If we were both offered knighthoods... Well, okay, well, neither of us are ever going to be offered anything at all, which makes it all the easier for us to say, of course, of course we would turn them down. Yeah, I think we'd probably accept. Do you? Yeah, I think we, we'd say I, I love the fact that you've actually thought this through. No, I, I didn't. It was just hearing Andrew Flintoff talking about his MBE. I just thought, well... What would you like? What Which gong would you want? I don't care, really. One of the pretty ones. <laughs> and I like to wear a nice outfit. <laughs> are you allowed to wear a cape? I think that's compulsory. Is that? Okay, give you fine. a special cape. Okay, if it involves wearing a cape, then I'd I'm... like to be a knight of the garter. So that... you can wear a garter? A garter and a cape, but <laughs> n- nothing else. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's an image that's anyway. going to haunt me for a while. It is. Anyway, uh, this is going to be an interesting show today because we've got two guests. Uh, we're going to talk to Keanu Reeves just after 2.30. John Wick Chapter 2 mm-hmm. uh, is around. And after 3.30, we're going to talk to the, the amazingly successful Barry oh, Jenkins, Jenkins. Uh, the director uh, and the writer of Moonlight, mm-hmm. uh, co-writer of Moonlight, uh, with eight Oscar nominations. So um, that and La La Land basically dominated yeah. all, all the nominations and both filmmakers are 31. I know. It's just <laughs> terrifying, isn't well, it? Well, or terrifying slash incredibly encouraging. Yes, it, I think that's the correct way of looking at it, is that it's incredibly encouraging. So uh, it's guest-tastic. Uh, top ten coming up uh, in just a moment. Just want to play this because there was a lot of response to that. Um, if you don't hear the, if you don't download the podcast and you just hear the show uh, go out live, you'll have missed you'll have missed this. And okay. lots of people have been in touch with us after we played this last week. Yes, and usually, so this is a generic version of what people have been saying to us this week, which yeah. is, it was a bit of a rubbish week for various reasons, family, new, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was struggling a little bit, and then I put on your podcast. And when I heard this thing that you did, I laughed out loud on the train, on the coach, on the bus, walking down the street, in the shops, yeah. and I embarrassed myself because everyone thought I'd... And we should say that we didn't do it. It was something that was no, sent no, to we us. we don't by... do any of this no, no, no. stuff. So this was sent in by uh, a listener who had heard the podcast accidentally 
at the wrong speed mm-hmm. because she was listening to the podcast on one of those devices, which mm-hmm. apparently you can buy. Who knew? Uh, and what? And because it's half speed, but it keeps the same pitch, it means that it just sounds like a drunken conversation. <laughs> so this is from a couple of weeks ago. When is it the Danny Boyle clip? Is the Danny? So so Danny Boyle is in the studio. Okay. Jeremy Murray is the guy who sent this in. So Jeremy, thank you very much. This is a second play. We won't keep playing it, although I do think it's laugh out loud funny. So Jeremy sent us this from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you listen to Danny Boyle, Mark and Simon. At the wrong speed, the same pitch, it sounds like this. Lager, 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 lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega, mega, lager. I've had that in my head all day. Non-stop, all day. Because it's very exciting when it's very exciting. Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny. No. (laughs) Sorry. How can we get this out of your system? Because you did it last week. I've done it. I've done it for twenty years. When he comes in, he's gonna want to punch you. Yeah, well, again. <laughs> Stoner radio. It really is, That's isn't it? Is. Uh, so well, the best you. thing we ever did was us at half speed. Half speed, same pitch. That's Optimal, what you get. Yes. So, Jeremy, thank you very much for sending that in. So, um, who's this? This is from Jeff. Last year, you were kind enough to say hello to me whilst I was running the Berlin Marathon as part of my 50 at 50 list of things to do during the year I turned 50, obviously. I'm delighted to say that I heard your greeting just as I crossed the halfway point oh. and it spurred me on to competing the event, completing the event. At the time, one or two friends mentioned hearing the shout-out, but I've now discovered that the lovely Mr Thornton, form tutor to my elder daughter Polly, is also a member of your church. Very good. As you can see from this genuine extract from her school report, which dropped through the letterbox today... Right, so yes. here is, is the okay. And if you read it out, can you please mention my younger daughter Mim, or else there'll be trouble. So from so this this tutor comment is exactly the same standard stuff. Okay. As we near the end of our five year journey through this school, Polly continues to show high levels of maturity in her approach to school life. She's a pleasant and polite member of what has become an extended family in our former groups. So that's very, very nice. Good. So she's clearly yeah. smart. Thanks. She's continued to maintain high levels of effort. It's been my pleasure to be a part. Yeah. It's been a thorough pleasure. Yeah. And then at the end, I have every confidence too that should the enviable opportunity ever arise, she will say hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> Polly, I wish you every success in your future. All the best, Mr Thornton. <laughs> Very there good. You go. That's in a proper school report. Classy school, classy teacher, classy report. Very good. Classy pupil, classy family. Just generally classy. Indeed. Now, uh, before the top ten, Amber Whedon just wants a word. Whilst listening to your show last week, I experienced the most fantastic wittertainment-related crossover, whereby two seemingly unrelated aspects of my light of my life Met paths. Hmm. The first thing to say is that I'm a medium time listener and have been tuning into the church for about three years. I initially found your ramblings when navigating my final year at film school in Bournemouth. Since then, your unique mix of dad chat and film talk. <laughs> dad chat. That is what it is. Has not only provided perfect escapism, but also inspiration in that you never fail to remind me why I love storytelling and why filmmaking is as important, unifying, and art. No, is an important unifying Unifying art. art. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, curse that punctuation. Secondly, in late 2015, 
I embarked on my first feature film as the first as the assistant art director on Prevenge. Oh, wow. The making of the film was an intense, surreal and unforgettable time. I bet it was. Personally, I admire Alice Lowe's attitude towards... She's the director. Yes, and the star and the writer. Towards female filmmakers, filmmakers breaking boundaries and expectations. As a lover of horror and cult cinema, I'm nothing but proud to be part of such a special production. Rightly so. Now, imagine my delight to hear Mark reviewing the film, not only reviewing, but enjoying, not only enjoying, but officially naming Prevenge... His movie of the week. And yeah. Was it a joint movie of the week? I can't remember, but I loved Prevenge. Just did he say thank you for uh, both for sweetening the first highlight of my fledgling career, Tinkety Tonk, and Down with Battenberg Cake. Yeah, it was it was um, joint uh, f- f- with um, 20th Century Women, wasn't it? There you go. Yeah, but it was it's really great. It's really really great. Uh, box office top ten <laughs> at ten. The space between us. It's the fault in our Mars. That's all that needs to be said. Uh, Georgia Stratton, age thirteen. Okay. I'm a 13-year-old, uh, long-time enforced listener on long car, long car journeys, which she says is an L-T-E-L-O-L-C-J. Yes. My parents only listen to the podcast on long car journeys, meaning we're always behind by a few weeks. Therefore, I haven't heard Mark's opinion of on the space between us yet. However, I still wanted to offer my opinion of the film. Go ahead. I, for one, was mesmerised. The beginning was exceedingly interesting and drew me into the movie. The progression in time was clear, not at all confusing, and the characters were tremendously portrayed. The character of Gardner was by far my my favourite, as I love the actor Asa Butterfield. Uh, Caitlin and I had a moment, this is her friend Caitlin, had a moment of uncontrollable laughter during the section where Gardner changes from a hospital gown into an old man's clothes and looks like an absolute fool. Uh, all three of us that went to the film enjoyed it, and we give it nine out of ten. Thank you for reading this email. But there we go, and that is absolutely target audience responding to the film, so I'm very, very glad that you liked it that much. Daniel Pacey, The Space Between Us, launches with an engrossing introductory sequence before levelling off into an atmospheric and amusing near-future teen adventure. Its trajectory veers a little, of course, into the mawkish and absurd at times, which is a shame because otherwise it's a surprisingly uplifting journey. I like the way that, I like the way that was put together. Rings is at nine. Oh, and it's rubbish. And I mean, actually, I speak as somebody who probably is target audience for Rings because it's, you know, a film aimed at horror fans, although presumably aimed at teenage horror fans who haven't seen the Japanese original and the Japanese sequels or, you know, any of any of the other incarnations. I thought it was really insultingly boring and stupid. And I, I had, you know, I, I went along to see it in a public screening and everybody else in the cinema seemed as utterly underwhelmed by it as I did and the fact that it's number nine in the box office top ten already suggests that it is it, it is absolutely boring people rigid around the country. Hacksaw Ridge is at number eight. Two different movies you know the first half of it is strangely sentimental and dewy-eyed second half is ultra-violent I don't think either half completely finds the, the right tone and I I am still somewhat surprised by how much the people who like it really like it. I think there are... I mean, I think there's no question that Mel Gibson can direct, and he can direct action sequences, but, it, you know, you put it next to Apocalypto, they're just in different leagues. Split is at seven? <sighs> Very, you know, lovely central performances by James McAvoy, at least seven of them, although I think that in total there are, you know, umpty-thrumpty different personalities. Written rather clumsily, put together as a kind of exploitation B-movie that if you didn't come to it with all the baggage that an M. Night Shyamalan film brings, you might think, well, you know, that was weird throwaway trash. I mean, McAvoy's good. Um, It's, it is, I think it is Shyamalan on the road back to making better work than he had done in the, I mean, as I said, I really didn't like the visit, but other people really did. Uh, Lion, is it six? I loved Lion. And I, it worked for me both times round. I think Dev Patel is, 
really good in it. I think the kid, as uh, is Sonny Power from the uh, opening sequence, is just astonishing. And I don't, I don't know how old he is. I mean, he's really he's a tiny little kid. But he has that sort of Spielbergian uh, quality of you know vulnerability but toughness, and I found it very moving. I mean, you liked it as well, didn't you? Yeah, I thought it was terrific. Uh, La La Land's at five. I think we've probably said everything. About well, only you know, only to say that 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 we are in this slightly weird position with La La Land that, that the, the the sides have become so embattled. I've read so many things now by people who really really don't like La La Land. We have a house guest at the moment who's a, a very good friend um, from Canada, a really smart guy, and uh, you know called Murray, who's a, you know a film academic and intellectual and bon vivant and all the rest of it. He, hates La La Land. <laughs> you know, it's, really, he's wrong. Well, I think so. I think so. But the people who don't like it really and don't like it. And he hates it because? Because it's not a proper musical. And it's not a proper musical because... I, I I would I would have to bring I, this is not my argument. I'd have to bring him in and uh, although I have to say that what it, when you know you know when you're arguing with somebody and they have a contrary position to you, but then they say something that is very on the money and you and it makes you go oh oh hang on there may be something in this and Murray did this thing that he went la la land and then he struck a pose he didn't what's something he says he struck a pose and the pose was so perfectly satirical of La La Land that I actually for a moment thought he might be right. But then I knocked that thought aside yeah, you need very, to, you very quickly. need to kick him out, I think. <laughs> Murray, I'm sorry. That's it. Bye. Bye. So long. Uh, train spotting. T2 train spotting. T2 train spotting. I mean, much more emotional than anybody expected. I mean, I, 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 I think we were all both relieved and delighted and charmed by how much the film didn't let us down. I've, there's been so much correspondence from people saying that they had found, they found themselves really emotionally affected by it, that it was, it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's a study of masculinity and friendship and betrayal and all those things and, and aging. And it starts with a really, really funny gag with, um, with Renton on the treadmill, which is a really smart joke that 20 years after that running down Princess Street uh, opening to find him on the treadmill is just, I think, and it, and it continues in that vein. Uh, Sing is at number three. I like Sing. You've seen Sing. I like Sing. We've talked about Sing. We spoke yeah. to Matthew McConaughey about Sing. Yes. Um, the good lady Professor Her indoors is less convinced, but it, I mean, I'm finding Does myself... she say it's not a, not a real cartoon? <laughs> so I'm I, finding... bet Mur- I bet Murray thinks it's not a, <laughs> not a real cartoon. cartoon. I'm finding myself surrounded by contrary opinions, but I've decided to rise above it all. Uh, anyway, it's fun, and it's it's a good half-term treat. Yeah. Uh, Fifty Shades Darker is it number two? So let me let me. You have me. you have correspondence. I can feel that you were trotting through the other ones in order to get to correspondence. I'm trotting through because Fifty Shades is it two? Uh, Lego Batman's at one. And there's a load of correspondence. And there's quite a lot of okay. correspondence. Well, also. tell us what the listeners have had to say about Fifty Shades. And Darker. there's quite a lot on 20th Century Women and Prevention, okay. which aren't in the top ten. No, sadly. Fifty Shades Darker. Then here's uh, Steena Levy. As a 26-year-old woman who enjoys erotic fiction, I consider myself to be amongst the franchise's target audience. Okay. But I gave up on the books early on because the writing was bad and the protagonists stereotypical. And sadly, the films haven't been allowed to rectify these shortcomings. No. Erotical and pedestrian at best, the film actually reminded me of Entourage and its claim to pander to all our hopes and fantasies. Though Fifty Shades is nowhere near as offensive, I refuse to believe that the majority of women have the sexual and consumer fantasies depicted in this film. Mark is right. The audience I'm a part of 
is poorly underserved. And that must be the reason why so many of us are satisfied with such a subpar effort. And why, if these films are catering to a female audience, do we see more of Anna's skin than we do of Christian's? Mm. Is our culture so male-centric that even a film geared towards women doesn't manage to break away from the male gaze? Mm -hmm. The flower in the title credits reminiscent of George O'Keefe should have warned me of the film's simplifying misinterpretation of what goes on in women's heads. We are more complex than this, most of us at least. So to all filmmakers looking for erotic fiction to adapt, check out... Cracking the Dating Code or The Devil and the Playgirl, books which treat their characters like human beings and which have something to say about what it takes to trust and how hard it is to overcome your own insecurities. Anyway, tinkety-tonk and down with the clichés. Very good. Um, Ed says, Ed Savoy, Fifty Shades Darker is like Waiting for Godot. <laughs> a film in which nothing happens twice. There, there is obviously there's going to be a semicolon there. Yeah. Just as the characters in the play are waiting in vain for the title character, the audience in Fifty Shades Darker is waiting in vain for a dramatic thread to build instead of being dropped like an atomically hot potato. As Fifty Shades Darker manages to be both pants and frequently pantless, <laughs> that may be the only point of comparison, <laughs> unless theatrical productions have gotten quite risque. Uh, and one more, Joanne, who's 32 and in Airdrie. I'm a list of three years. This is my first email to your good selves and would like to consider myself very much an ingrained member of your church, which is why I found it difficult to hear Mark describe Fifty Shades Darker as uninteresting. Okay. Perhaps it's down to me being overly excited about the film coming out after waiting two years, or maybe it was the few glasses of champagne I enjoyed beforehand. Yes, can I just say that I, I do have it on very good authority from a cinema manager that a large proportion of the audience... Uh, on opening night of Fifty Shades, were in a state of advanced refreshment before the film began. Tanked up, were they? <laughs> anyway, says Joanne, I loved it, even more so than the first one. Yes, it was quite pedestrianly written, and the actual acting may look mediocre as a result of that, but as an avid lover of the books, the films just bring it all to life for me, and I have absolutely no complaints. I'm thoroughly looking forward to the third instalment. Can't wait to see more from Christian and Anastasia, though I suspect I'll have viewed Fifty Shades Darker a good few more times. Uh, before that happens. Perhaps, Mark, the reason you didn't enjoy the film was more down to it not being your particular taste rather than it not being an enjoyable film. Well, look, you know, that's a perfectly valid comparison, uh, valid criticism. And I did say in my review, look, I am not the target audience for this. It is also clearly true that if you're a fan of the books, the fi this film is uh, spectacularly faithful to the tone because it's completely overseen by E.L. James, whose partner is the screenwriter and who has very correctly, uh, you know, as is her right, exerted as much control over it as she possibly can. The problem for me is, I mean, I'm not a fan of the books. I haven't, I confess I haven't read them. I read some of the first one. It didn't work for me. I just, I found the writing impenetrable. But um, in terms of the uh, the filmmaking of the first one, there was something interesting about the fact that Sam Taylor-Johnson was trying to make one kind of movie and Kelly Marcel was trying to write one kind of movie. And, and you could feel this sort of... You know, there was a tension in it. In the case of this, James Foley, who, as I said, is a filmmaker I, ha I have respected in the past. I interviewed Foley years and years ago for After Dark, My Sweet, and I really thought he was something special. And um, I think he has got a great eye, and I think uh, that he is somebody who had, you know, real talent and passion. But he is also somebody who is a safe pair of hands nowadays. And I felt that it, this was a very, very... There's no tension in it. There's no feeling of... You know, somebody's trying to make them, you know, a more complicated. It's just like this is what this is, and that's what I mean in that it's terribly uninteresting and terribly pedestrian. And also, let's be honest about this: if you look at the history of films which deal with or flirt with or involve uh, S and M, this is not uh, 
about that at all. I mean, it's actually become, it's turned much more into a kind of uh, straightforward uh, romantic thriller, particularly with the setup towards the third one. And I, I just, I mean, as I said at the time, I don't think it's terrible. I just think it's terribly ordinary. Uh, and uh, the UK's number one, splendidly, is the Lego Batman movie. Which you've been to see since last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So should we do some correspondence yes, on ahead. that? And then we'll see uh, where we are. David Street from Newbury. I had the great pleasure of taking three of my boys to see Lego Batman at the weekend, and it was an utter delight. <clears throat> it was a packed cinema with only some minor code infractions that were easily forgivable given how young and excitable the audience was. My boys chortled heartily, usually at any joke involving Batman or Robin's pants. <laughs> well, I was a 40-year-old dad who had his mind blown by Tim Burton's Batman in 89, revelled in the knowing jokes about the previous incarnations yeah. of the character. I felt it was so funny, right. smart, technically dazzling, with a terrific voice cast. And much like The Good Doctor, I simply couldn't keep up. Um, with everything that was happening on the screen at times, and this will be a great excuse to go and see it again. Yeah. And during the climactic sing-along, my four-year-old son was so thrilled by it all that he launched into an impromptu dance-off with the young lad who sat next to him, <laughs> much to the merriment of all present. But other parents, be warned, my boys were so hyped up when the credits rolled that while attempting to herd them out of the building, I felt like Rocky Balboa in those scenes where he has to train by catching chickens. <laughs> <laughs> David Street in Newby. Thank you, David. Now, his. Uh, Here's an interesting point from Andrew Oakley in Gloucestershire. Uh, I took the family to see Lego Batman. All three primary age children loved it, confirming that you don't need to understand the in-jokes yeah. to thoroughly enjoy the movie. Great. It took me a few days to work out why I didn't love it. Okay. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't outstanding for me. The reason is that this is a Batman spoof movie. It's not a Lego movie. There are almost no Lego references. There is hardly any, any Lego building. What there is, as the good doctor noted, is non-stop Batman references, which to me feels like only half of the film's title. As a churchgoer of Programmer's Pew, this looked like a familiar film studio ploy. So here's his reasoning. They pay us programmers a large chunk of money to create programmes for the digital cameras, scenery and special effects. It's very hard work. The first movie in the series then goes out. Right. The film studio is then left with a bunch of programmes sitting around doing and costing nothing. So the studios create a sequel with those old programmes and don't need to pay us programmers for much new stuff. Usually this ploy is used for a straight-to-DVD sequel. And that's what I realised I was watching. I was paying a full cinema price for a straight-to-DVD sequel. Uh, Andrew Oakley, hmm. BSc, Honours Business Computer Systems and the best netball scorer in primary school, 1981, but they wouldn't let me join the team as I'm not a girl. Anyway, who Andrew, clearly not over that stuff. Yes, exactly. Just well, that's, that's very interesting. That, that would never even have occurred to me. I mean, I do think the film is better than, than, than a straight-to-DVD sequel. I think it's infinitely better than that. However... Um, that is a very interesting uh, insight into the industry, which I, I had had simply not occurred. So presumably, he's talking about the computer programs that build all the. I presume so. I mean, stuff. basically, I you know what I understand about computer programming wouldn't fill the back of a small postage stamp. But from the way you described it, it sounds like exactly the same is true for you as well. I think you, you're the the point at which you're spot on is it's a Batman spoof movie rather than a Lego movie, and it is true that in. That the Lego movie, which I think is a better film, I think the Lego movie is a genuine kind of modern classic, not least because you and I were talking about this earlier on the element of surprise. I mean, who knew the Lego movie was going to be that good? But all the stuff about the craggle and, you know, the, the, the constant gags about Lego world building in the Lego movie were rather wonderful. And certainly it's true that with the exception of some stuff at the beginning about, you know, the whole thing being built on a table, 
and some stuff towards the end. Um, it is it's about the characters rather than it being about Lego. Although there is the funny stuff with the microwave oven and the and the lobster thermidor and all that kind of thing. I mean, I did, but I did really enjoy it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. I laughed all the way through. I did feel like I couldn't quite keep up with the jokes. What it doesn't have is a killer song like Everything Is Awesome. You don't walk out singing a tune. Although if you're four years old, maybe you, you have, have a dance-a-thon. Dance yeah. But also, what it doesn't have quite that kind of existential punch that the Lego Movie did in its third act, in which it went somewhere that somewhere that was so audacious and so extraordinary that I think we were all completely caught off guard by it, weren't we? Yeah, I think, but uh, Lego Batman movie in general is is raking in and incredibly yeah. popular. I and what Lego Fifty Shades would look like. I don't really think that's a very helpful thought to, to plant in our minds. Yeah. Thank you. Robin just made a rude joke that I'm not going to repeat. Did you hear it as well? No, it was obviously just specially. Can I can I say that on the on the radio, or I'm not allowed to? I'm not I'm not saying it. So you. Say I'm just looking. At, well, yeah, I'm just looking to Robin. Say, am I allowed to say that joke? Oh, no, I'm not. So that's okay, great. Okay. So Robin just put a joke in my head. Well, I'm not allowed to say it out loud. And now I feel like I've, I've you know, like I'm, I'm, it's very hard not we'll put to. Put it in the podcast. Okay, we'll put it in the podcast. Um, just, but it's a very good joke. And I'm well done. 20th Century Women is not in the top 10. Uh, but it's wonderful. It's it absolutely wonderful. wonderful. And neither is Prevenge. And it's wonderful. So just a few thoughts on that. Yeah. Ella. Uh, Ella Overshot. I yeah. loved this film. Every character was likably flawed. The performance is consistently good, though for me, Lucas Zuma was standout. And as a coming-of-age mother myself of pre-teenage boys, I felt totally connected to Annette Benning's attempts to get it right. Yeah. I can't remember the exact line, but the moment that hit hardest was when she says she'll never, ever see her son as he really is out in the world in the way his friends do, yes. and that he seems to get further away each day. Yeah. I felt like I was looking at my future self, attempting to navigate the precarious path of being a parent to teenagers. If my own memories of teenagedom are anything to go by, nothing I do will be right anyway, so I may as well just look forward to more time in the cinema with no babysitter required. Yes. Um, David Lovely. Dunn. Thank you. Um, who's been listening to us since Radio 1 days and, in fact, listened to you when you were on Mark Radcliffe's late-night Radio 5 show 100 years ago. Wow, that was a long time ago. I have a feeling that 20th Century Women may not be in the top ten, but after hearing Annette Benning on your show and after you gave it glowing reviews, I had to see it. I've now watched it twice and will no doubt watch it again soon. Much like yourselves, I'm a man of certain age and can remember 1979 as a time of change and transition in many ways. Admittedly, in Salford, where I lived then, there wasn't much of the Californian hippie vibe going on, but the musical, social and political changes were very evident. And having gone through punk in my teens and out the other side, I could relate so much to this film, especially being a parent now. It's such a beautiful piece of work. Every performance is spot on and nuanced. The story unfolds in a gentle and meandering way, but never seems to waste a single second. As you said, you come out of the film wanting to spend more time with the people in the movie. You really do. And I plan to do that again very soon. One last quick one. Catherine in South London just cycled home from... London's glitzy West End, imagining myself being trailed by rainbows and accompanied by a talking head soundtrack, <laughs> full of the joys of a spring that hasn't even arrived yet, because I've had a perfect Valentine's evening out with my little sister Rosie to see 20th Century Women. It's hard to put into words quite how heartful and uplift heartful and uplifted we both felt after such a joyous, moving, wise and above all human film. I laughed, cried, fell in love with every single character, wished to be a quarter of a 1% as cool as Annette Benning. I'd settle for Greater Gerwig, squeezed my sister's hand resolved to wear more red lipstick and most of all to love all the flawed funny mysterious and infuriating people who fill my life 
Thank you for the interview with Miss Benning and your warm reviews, both of which convinced me that this was a film I had to see, despite not really having much of a handle on the premise before I went, <laughs> and that it would be the perfect film to see with a much-loved sister, and it really was. I'm now even more sad to have spent all week arguing with an old friend and fellow Wittertainee. Sadly, he lives in Bulgaria, so I can't <laughs> sort it out over a pint. So if you could give Neil a wass-up, I'd be very grateful for your diplomatic services. Uh, Catherine, thank Didn't you, you say to Annette Benning that you, you had gone into it with some kind of conflict in your head. Yeah, no, no, I just, I just be no, you can't, no, of course you can't do that. And then I came out going, oh yeah, yeah, fine, of course you can. Because it is, it is one of those films, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a, it's a shame that it's not, you know, a blockbuster success, or you know, obviously it's playing in in less cinemas. But how interesting that I don't think we have a negative response no. from the people who've been to see it. So I think we can say with hands on heart, if you get a chance to go see Twentieth Century Women, do take it because it is wonderful. I would say the same thing incidentally about Prevent, which obviously is a very different audience, but is a really, really terrifically dark and satirical piece of work. Coming up in the next half hour, Keanu Reeves and John Wick chapter two. Anything else are you going to squeeze in? Or no, you... not in the next half hour. That's what we'll do in the next. Cause, it's cause, Keanu because you talked to Kanani Nunukov for a while. All right. And then we'll then you and I will talk about John, John Wick, Wick chapter two. <laughs> Just make a few last-minute changes to this well-oiled machine. How is it looking from your point of view? It's a well-oiled. Chaos? So, uh, Who said chaos? Well, we're going to talk about John Wick, I think. That's what we're going to do. John Wick Chapter 2? Yes. Uh, because... Do you think there was a long meeting about that title? Here's, here's the thing, right? There are two... You can, you can tell two different stories okay. about our two guest stars. Yes. So later, Barry Jenkins is talking Moonlight. Yes. The number that you need to know for that is eight. Uh, and you're about to hear from Keanu Reeves. The number you need to know for that is... 142. Okay. <laughs> what do you think that is? In fact, why don't you just I listen? thought I knew what the eight was. Okay. Yeah, okay. We'll, 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 we'll tell all later. Let's talk John Wick 2. Uh, we'll play you a clip from the movie uh, with uh, Keanu as John Wick and as the Bowery King, Lawrence Fishburne. He's offered $7 million for your life. $7 million is a lot of money, Mr. So I guess you have a choice. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? Somebody please get this man a gun. Let's go. Your descent into hell begins here, Mr. Wick. Earl will guide you. Do be careful on your way down. Oh, and remember, you owe me. You don't want me owing you. And that's a clip from John Wick 2. I'm delighted to say that Keanu Reeves is our special guest. Keanu, how are you, sir? I'm good today. Good morning. It's very good to have you. Is it, so John Wick Chapter 2, because just looking behind you at the poster, the two, he's got like chapter written through it. And I think at the beginning of the movie it says Chapter 2. What are we calling it? Yes, it's called John Wick Chapter 2. John Wick Chapter 2. Now, the last time you were on the show which you won't remember, but we had a long conversation about Side by Side and mm. uh, back in 2012 about the future of digital uh, technology. And I found all the way through uh, when I was watching John Wick, I was thinking, I wonder whether that... It was such a great film and the conversation... And you were so enlightening about the subject. And I just... Before I forget altogether, I just... Whether it was ever worth revisiting that and the, the extent of digital technology and whether you're always constantly looking at the film process. Yeah, absolutely. As a keen student, you know. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I was doing Side by Side, um, Panavision stopped making film cameras and Aeroflex stopped making, um, Aerie stopped making film cameras. Um, and I would say about 80% of the movies 
we're 85, we're being done on film. And uh, now in 2016, 17, um, I don't know, is it 90% yeah, of the probably. films are shot on digital? So that's kind of a sea change, yeah. um, technology-wise. Um, John Wick, digital, working with the cinematographer Dan Laustsen, who uh, really, I mean, I think the film has a really beautiful aesthetic. Um, colors, the lensing, um, the camera movement, the composition. Because my guess is, uh, as you revealed in Side by Side, you're a keen student of these of these matters, that you are aware of every single stage of the film process. So obviously we're blown away by the choreography and the action sequences and the fact that John Wick is back. And I'm guessing that Cool, Keanu, great, uh, thank you. Cool, great, and thank you. But, but Keanu Reeves is actually involved in everything. You know, you see all this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um yeah, I'm with, uh, with John Wick Chapter 2, uh, involved in the creative aspect of it. Um, I developed the first script with the producer, um, and then going into Chapter 2, it was like, okay, so why a sequel? What are we doing? We have this wonderful opportunity. We have a film that was uh, embraced by an audience, and they're giving us this opportunity. What the heck are we going <laughs> to do? Um, and so it was really cool to sit with the director, Chad Stahelski, the producer, Basil Iwanek, and and the writer Derek Kolstad, and start to kind of brainstorm. Um, uh, the director knew he wanted to start the film about five days from the, from the first film, which I thought was cool. And uh, So you're kind of exhausted already. No, no, that's the thing, though. It's the creative. The creative gives you the chi. And, uh, I mean, I love the character. And um, what it, I love the world. And so it was cool to come up with ideas, the marker, the debt, the consequences of this assassin's past, um, kind of putting John, the civilian, the guy who's grieving his wife, his life in danger. Just in case anyone missed John Wick episode one, right? Where, just get us up to speed. So it's five days later, but what? Where do we find him? Five days after what? He's uh, okay. So he's an assassin. His wife's dead. Um, someone's you know his dead wife gives him a dog to help kind of ground him, have him a connection to the world. Um, as fate would have it, this young kid, this Russian kid. Ends up uh, stealing my car, my 69 Mustang, and, you know, killing my dog. He doesn't know that I'm this mythical assassin, John Wick, who's trying to retire. So the first film, this kind of Old Testament John Wick character kind of comes out, and uh, he goes after this kid, you know, seeking a kind of revenge. At the same time, his father's a Russian crime lord, and uh, he starts sending people to kill me. Now, needless to say, I'm John Wick, so they don't... They don't make it. And then in the second film, the film opens with me trying to get my car back. Um, but it turns out it's not my car that I want. It's the letter from my wife, a birthday card. Um, and hence begins the John Wick tone. So it's interesting. So you, you, it's interesting that you should call Action him... Action and drama. Action and drama and Old Testament. Is he, is he a righteous man? Uh, righteous. Yeah. Yeah, I think he is. I think John Wick actually has a... A strong sense of honor, uh, you know. There's this underworld, this kind of cool underworld in the John Wick uh, tone, where there's this underworld of the assassins and the criminals, you know, kind of represented by this hotel called the Continental, which is a kind of safe house um, for all of these nefarious characters. Um, where, where, so, you're, where you're not allowed to break the law. Right? Where you can't yeah, break yeah, the yeah. rules, you can't, no business Ian can be Ian McShane conducted. is in charge. Oh, the fantastic, what a man, what a man Ian McShane. 
uh, fabulous, fabulous uh, actor and person. Um, and so you have the real world, and then you have this kind of mythical underground world. And in the second film, Chapter 2, we open that world up with new characters. Lawrence Fishburne is playing this character called the Bowery King, which is like an even deeper level of nefarious characters. And then we have a high level, which is called the High Table. Yeah. And I, so, think, I, th- I think... And so I'm, I'm trying to pay... Someone yeah. comes to collect a debt, and John Wick doesn't really want to do that. John Wick wants to stay retired. Uh, but he's forced to by the rules. If he doesn't pay this debt, he gets killed. If he kills a person who own, owns his marker, which is the kind of um, John Wickian IOU, I get killed. So I'm forced to go do this. Does that does that change the tone of what we think about John Wick? Given that that's why I asked about whether he's a righteous man, because now he's he's setting off on this mission, but he's and he's going through all this John Wickian business but he's doing it because he has to rather than because he wants to yeah he's he he just wants to be left alone and retire um but he is he's forced into this i mean we were exploring the idea of the duality of the guy so i mean there's john the the civilian the the widow widower and um and then john wick the assassin and in a way john wick ends up fighting for john's life and i think it's about his kind of self-agency his independence from all of this world um, unfortunately, the decisions that John Wick make kind of put John in a pickle. So uh, there's a lot of people, there's uh, open contracts in the world. The underground world is coming after John Wick. I can't imagine John Wick saying, I think I'm in a pickle. I know, John, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm in a pickle. Yeah. How long does it take to become John Wick? I've seen all the videos of, of the weapons training that you did and, oh, cool. and the martial arts training. I mean... You really, when you go for this, you put your, I mean, all the people who you worked with were saying things like, uh, no one works harder than Keanu Reeves. So how long did it take to become John again? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I love action. I love doing action and I love being able to do as much as I possibly can because not only is it fun to do that, um, but I think it's also a time to reveal character and connect with the audience. If they see you doing it and they see you before and then during and then after and see the consequences, I think you're having a relationship with the audience. You're not cutting away. There's no, there's less of a suspension of disbelief. It's like more like disbelief, like, oh my gosh, did that just happen? Um, which I think is cool. And it's, and it's fun to go to John Wick boot camp. Um, so what, a, and what does that actually involve? Yeah, so for this one, it was about three, four months on and off uh, of jujitsu and judo. Um, I got to do a lot of live fire. Um, so going to the gun range and, you know, spending time with all of the weapons and shooting steel and targets and doing transitions and all that fun stuff. And and driving cars around, sliding them around. It's fun. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's boot camp. But on the other hand, this is you just doing what you enjoy doing anyway i know but you know you got to put some struggle in there i mean it yeah i mean i don't know it's just uh i don't know it's fun are you in fact is it one of the people that you work with one of the stunt guys you work with said uh, something like i think keanu is a bit of a warrior anyway wow that's kind are you is there a part of you that actually you think is a warrior not a warrior but a warrior um i don't know I wouldn't say that about myself. I mean, I would say I'm committed and dedicated. And, uh, you know, I love what I do. And I, I love John Wick. And, and so for me, it's, you know... And I'm, I'm also getting an opportunity to, to do some things in the action, you know, physical acting world that a lot of people don't get a chance to do. I'm getting this training. I have a director who knows how to 
do the composition, has the concepts. I'm working with, you know, fantastic stunt people because it's a cooperation, it's a dance. And so for me, um, I want to do as as much and as best that I can. And I wonder so if the, takes. the choreography of of this film is almost as intense as La La Land, you know? I mean, oh, the, sure. in terms of the dance and the ballet that you go through, that's it's just as intense, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, and then throw in some cars, <laughs> throw in some flipping, some gun shooting, some knife work. Um, yeah, Ryan Gosling didn't have any of that, did he? Yeah, uh, he just had to sing and dance. No, but which is another tightrope, which, which is a whole other thing. Of course, you know? no disrespect intended. Uh, some listeners' uh, questions, if I can. Uh, uh, Christopher George, listener Christopher, says, is John Wick a hero or an anti-hero? Mm, it's quantum, baby. It's both. Okay. Um, Until your perspective, right? So what, well, you, this, then I think you kind of have to decide that. And what's your perspective? Um, I'm quantum. I mean, I think, I think uh, you know what? I think he's heroic in the sense of the way he's fighting for his life. James Golding, uh, I think the Continental Hotel could get its own spin-off or TV series, which would be a first, actually, wouldn't it, for a hotel to get its own spin-off? But it's intriguing. A spin-off. Well, I know. What did Faulty Towers? What happened with them? Did they get a spin-off? I don't think they did. No? No. no. They should have. Would you be interested in setting that up? The Faulty Tower Continental? Yeah. John Wick. Where all the, it's like the failed assassins, the guys who can't really do it, Imagine. who don't really want to be criminals. Imagine that just for a moment. Faulty Towers. John Cleese is the head of the kind of Faulty Tower underworld. Ian McShane would probably fit quite happily in both. There's the connection. Yeah, that's where he like, you know, he goes there on the weekend. Uh, (laughs) This is a great idea, which you've just had. Uh, And Darren, uh, as a fan growing into my 40s, could you share your secret voodoo spell for remaining so spry at 52. What a good word spry is. That shooting range clip was insane. How do you manage to, to stay so sharp? Um, well, uh, you know, it's all perspective. But um, I don't know. I've been blessed with the good genes and, um, because I'm certainly not doing it enough to take care of this old mortal coil, um, kind of putting it through the ringer. But, uh, you know, when, I, when, it t- when it comes time to go to work, it's, it's the diet, it's the training, um, and, you know, less drink, and, you know, but... Uh, you get your fun elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, well, it comes, it kind of turns into the focus yeah. of that, you know. Uh, what do we see you in next, Keanu? Um, what am I doing? What am I doing? Uh, I have a, a wonderful supporting role in a picture from a great director, Anna Lily Amapur. Uh, in a film called The Bad Batch with Suki Waterhouse. Okay. Uh, Keanu, uh, a pleasure to have you back. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you so much, man. Uh, Keanu is talking about John Wick 2, and I think you can tell from that interview, he's great fun. He's really, really good company. You never quite know which version of which movie star you're going to get, whether they're going to enjoy the press, enjoy the promo, or hate it and just pretend or whatever. But he... He, I mean, you said while we were listening to, he's like someone doing an impression of Keanu Reeves. There were so many Keanu... Keanuisms. It was just delightful. You know, we could have spent another 20 minutes. Well, also, because you ended on the thing about, you know, Anne Lily Amapur, who is a a really exciting director. And actually, I want to hear more about that film anyway. And and old timers to this show, the the hardcore, will remember that when he came on to talk about Side by Side, which is why I started the interview with it, as a student of film, he's really, really smart. And he had everybody talking to him about 35 mil and digital and all that kind of stuff. And then in the middle of that, he goes... you know, it's quantum, baby. It's both. He's Keanu Reeves. It's where the chi is. You know? <laughs> yeah, what but, was that chi? Anyway, uh, yeah, so John Wick Chapter 2. Okay, so, I mean, uh, 
as you, you found out in that interview, you know, absolutely charming company. And uh, you, you said, and I think this is genuinely that all the research you'd done, people kept saying nobody works harder, nobody's more reliable. They love working with him and completely committed, 100%. Yeah. Does, does all the fighting, does the stunts, the whole, okay. the whole business. Um, he said in that uh, interview as well, there's a moment when they go, okay, we've got the chance to do the sequel. What the heck are we going to do? Well, the answer is more of the same, but bigger and louder, which he, as he described, action drama, pause, and pathos. <laughs> Lots of pathos. Funny. Yeah, it is. It is. Timing. So, as he said, it picks up uh, kind of almost immediately after John Wick is going to attempt to retrieve the car that uh, he's been after. But, of course, it's not the car that he's really interested in. It's the letter. He then gets uh, drawn more and more into the... The underground world, as he described, the character played by uh, Lawrence Fishburne is there. All the stakes are up. It's all markers and gold coins and people having to do things that they don't necessarily want to do. As you, if you've seen the trailer, you know the setup is, you're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it, but just not working on it very efficiently. Fact, just on, on the trailer? Yeah. The trailer actually has, I think it's the only time I've ever seen a trailer where they have the ending in it. The final dialogue. Have the the final it? dialogue of the movie. Not, not that this matters at all. The very final dialogue is in the trailer. No. Yep. <laughs> which is, it. which is, as you would say, well, there nuts. Go. Yeah, completely nuts. So, um, the first uh, John Wick itself had this kind of you know enjoyable physicality, nodded its head to lots of things like you know martial arts films and. Jean-Pierre Melville and Point Blank and, you know, it was very sort of semi-literate and, and, and I think surprised people with, with how much fun it was. In terms of this, what happens is, as I said before, they, they turn everything up to 11 from the opening in which he goes to get his car back. It turns into just a completely sort of insane car chase fight sequence and that pretty much sets the tone for what's going to go on for the rest of the film. Uh, there's a lot more in this film of the building of the, you know, the, all the underworld stuff and all the secret stuff going on. Incidentally, it is worth pointing out this has got a 15 certificate, but it has been pre-trimmed by the distributors. They've taken out 23 seconds of cuts from a sequence. If I tell you what the sequence is, it is actually, it will actually provide a plot, plot spoiler. But just so you know, it has been trimmed down in order to get uh, a 15 rating. I wish that I could just wholeheartedly say it's really great fun. You've seen the trailer. It's because it, I, I you know, could, could look. The problem with it is this. I think what it lacks is it lacks the hook of the first one because in turning everything up, in cranking everything up, in just making everything completely crazy, not that the other one didn't have excesses, it becomes like the second album with everything turned up to 11 but none of the really, really memorable tunes. And much as it grieves me to say so, I did become a little bit bored. What I wasn't getting was that kind of sense of joyous abandon that you should be getting from this. I did actually end up at one point thinking, you know, this is just starting to... And this sounds like a foolish thing to say in relation to a movie like this. This just looks like, you know, guns and ammo porn and there isn't anything else going on. Because that sort of sense of, you know, fantastical nonsense. When he was talking about Sam Ray, he was talking about, you know, both sides, quantum, blah, blah, you know, he's a hero, but he's an anti-hero. Actually, the problem was that the film didn't have that for me. What the film had was an awful lot of stuff going on on screen that kind of never, never hooked me in the way that it had done previously. I didn't think it was witty enough, for one thing. I mean, in that interview... Keanu Reeves is very funny. The interview is much funnier than the film. Yeah, and I and it, when he's talking about it, and he's, and he's actually, yeah, John Wick. Even when he says that, yeah, John Wick, the way he does it, you go, okay, he's, kind of, he's trying to sort of talk himself into the character. If the film had been as entertaining as him describing it, I would have liked it an awful lot more. As it was, I, I mean, you know, 
it is in terms of the visuals it's choreography you know you use the word choreography instantly that's what's come of being in a studio with me for all these years you now talk about fight sequences as choreography yeah it's true if i have taught you one thing it's that it's and well. yeah so uh and yes it is there is a, there are you know moments that are individually impressive choreography it's interesting hearing him talking about how much he likes doing all the jiu-jitsu stuff i did an an interview thing with keanu reeves just i think it was when um he must have just made one of the Matrix films or he was just about to make one of the Matrix films. And we were back, backstage before we went on and he was showing Charlize Theron his kung fu moves that he'd been learning for the movie. And you've never seen anybody sort of delight more in, you know, he was literally doing the thing that Elvis used to do, which, you know, Elvis used to show karate moves off. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what he did. If you got invited... Well, if you've got to impress Charlize somehow, you might as well... Exactly. And there is that sort of, you know, the, the love, the physical action thing. But what's what I think is unfortunate is that the film itself doesn't have that sense of joy. It did feel much. It, it felt more cynical than that. It felt more mechanical than that. It felt less involving than the interview did. And I, I would be lying if I didn't say that. You know, I came out of it feeling okay. That's enough. And now we have uh, John Wick three coming on, and there was no part of me at the end of John Wick two that thought I need this to go on any further. It is like a, it is like a video game in terms of uh... yeah, and some and sometimes clearly deliberately so because it is clearly playing with that kind of uh, that visual reference because there is a whole sequence towards the end which absolutely plays like a first person shooter game, and it's you know done done so on purpose, but it just it just felt a bit head banging. And a bit dull, didn't you the, think? The funniest bit is the... Do you is, agree with this? I, well, I do, I do. I didn't really enjoy it very much, but then I... It's not... I don't like that kind of... No, but oddly you know, enough, I Hong do. Kong gangster. But I do yeah. more than you do. And I've... You know, I know other people who've in, enjoyed it very much, and I... You know, it may be just me, but I, I, I didn't click with it. It didn't grab me. It, it certainly didn't feel... Like I said, there, was, there wasn't that sense of joyous abandon. Louis Kasekin, um from Wakefield, just back from the 11.30 showing at Cine World, way too long. Somewhere in there, there's oh, okay. a tighter, visceral movie, but it's weighed down by its own flabby pretentiousness. Hey, aren't we all? Um, <laughs> Mark Wood, just come out of John Wick 2. I loved it. The first JW was a bit of a cult classic, a hidden gem. This one takes uber-violence to another level again, but it's done with charm, humour and grit and lashings of imagination. Lovely eccentricities in the plot too. A superb action romp. I misled you. The number is not 142. It's 141. 141 is the number of people he kills in the movie. Mm -hmm. So that is the number. We'll do more list of correspondence on John Wick 2. What else are we going to do? Uh, Hidden Figures, The Founder, The Great Wall and Moonlight. And Barry Jenkins is our guest. 85058. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. James in Swindon. Uh, I took my good lady wife to the Valentine's Day preview of John Wick Chapter 2. I mean, it's hard to think that that's a particularly <laughs> romantic night out. Oh, but I can imagine. I mean, you know, the, the first... The first date the good lady, her indoors, and I went on was Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow vampire movie. Yeah, ours was a Charles Bronson film. Really? Which one? Death Wish. No. Two. Oh, my word. That's the that's the most reprehensible. Oh, oh sorry about that. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> that's astonishing. Anyway, um, I had high hopes. Her, not so much. Anyway, enjoyed the first film, and everything I had seen relating to the sequel had me feeling positive about its chances. John Wick 2 is a brutal, bloody, slow burn of an action movie. It expands on every element of the first film and, for my money, is largely successful. Wick is a man of few words and many violent actions. Keanu Reeves has never been the most emotive of actors and this role is tailor-made for him, a relentless killing machine who is a martial arts master. The expansion of the John Wick mythology is the biggest change from the first to the second film, uh, which gives us new locations and new assets for Wick 
to utilise. The highlight for me being Peter Serafinowicz as the sommelier. It doesn't always hit the mark when a communication about... He's not really a sommelier, <laughs> just, just to be clear. That's true. Uh, when a communication about John Wick is sent to all of the secret assassin society, it does appear that every third person in New York... Uh, is <laughs> That's right. Uh, James in Swindon. You're right. Who knew New York had so many assassins? Craig McClay... In Loughton, after point break speed, The Matrix, now John Wick, Keanu Reeves proves again, despite his limitations as an actor, he is a quite magnificent action movie star. The kinetic, balletic brilliance of Chapter 2 is mostly down to the inventive, visually creative extended gunfight and fistfight sequences of which Keanu is integral. Despite a mediocre bad guy, the end result, augmented by the phenomenal support of Ian McShane and Peter Serafinowicz, is, no, is as a sequel as good as the original. Already looking forward to Chapter 3. Uh, and one final one uh, from Mohammed El uh, Sawi uh, from Hayes. Uh, to write to you about John Wick 2. High expectations after the surprise hit. Trepidation here. Maybe disappointed about a subpar sequel. Uh, I really hope that the sequel would do justice to the first movie. And boy, was I in for a treat. From the first sequence to the last, I had some cheeky grin the whole way through uh, like I did the first time round. The movie was non-stop action with a great continuation of the story that didn't feel repetitive. They used what the first one was so good and special and turned it up to 11. It was funny, entertaining and brutal and good to see Neo and Morpheus, which was the clip we played <laughs> you earlier on the big screen again. Which you misheard in very entertaining fashion. Nine out of ten for me. I'll definitely be going to watch it again. Uh, thank you, Mo, uh, for that. So John Wick 2 uh, for Keanu Reeves, our first guest. Our other guest is yeah. Barry Jenkins. We'll talked to him So far, I have to say that our listeners' response is more positive than, 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 than mine or yours, and yeah, that, yeah. Uh, absolutely willing to accept that. Um, shall we move on? Yeah, I think we should move on with you. So, OK, fine. So Hidden Figures, um, uh, which if you've seen the poster, um, it's a poster of uh, three African-American w- women walking over a NASA sign with a rocket going up in the background, which seems to me to deliberately uh, uh, call to mind the poster for the right stuff. And the tagline is, meet the women you don't know behind the mission you do. Uh, The film is nominated for three Oscars, Best Motion Picture, uh, Actress in Supporting Role for Octavia Spencer and uh, Best Writing uh, Adapted Screenplay. So uh, as is uh, clear from that, so it is basically a story that you don't know about a story that you do. And in the title itself, Hidden Figures, there is a pun. The figures being both the mathematical hidden figures and the figures of these women who've played this very, very important role. So essentially the story is uh, in the 1960s when the Americans are desperately racing to uh, put uh, men into space and it's all a very, very complicated procedure. And it takes the input of uh, mathematically minded people uh, who at that point are referred to as computers, people who compute. Oh, okay. so, yeah, so if you are a computer... So a computer is a person. Yeah, 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 which is a, which is a you know, nice sort of historical detail. So uh, the film has uh, uh, Octavia Spencer as Dorothy Vaughan, uh, Taraji P. Henson as Catherine Johnson, Janelle Monet, who is also, of course, in uh, Moonlight, which we're going to refer to later on, as uh, Mary Jackson. And basically, at the beginning of it, they are uh, working in a segregated environment and are unable to, uh, you know, unable for their full talent to be used and appreciated by those around them because they're coming up against both a gender bar and a race bar. But it very, very quickly turns out that they are really smart and really, you know, able to bring something to bear on the mathematical problems that the uh, guys attempting to put uh, people into space are facing. And in the sequence, which you're going to hear now uh, in the clip, uh, Catherine 
proves to uh, Catherine Johnson proves to uh, Kevin Costner's uh, chief of the Space Task Force just how smart she is. How did you know the Redstone couldn't support orbital flight? That's classified information. It's top secret. Well, it's no secret why the Redstone tests keep failing. Numbers don't lie. And you figured all that out with this. Half the data's redacted. Well, what's there tells the story if you read between the lines. You did the math? Yes, sir. And how do you know about the Atlas rocket? That's not math. That data's not here, like you said. It's classified. I held it up to the light. You held it up to the light? Yes, sir. Well, there it is. Mm -hmm. Atlas. What's your name? Catherine Goebel. Are you a spy, Catherine? Am I what? I said, are you a Russian spy? No, sir. I'm not Russian. She's not Russian, sir. I love that scene, not least because, I mean, it's, you know, it's well written and it's nicely played. And, and also Kevin's beginning to sound like Jeff Bridges. Yeah, but not in a not in a no, bad in a, way. In a, I mean, one of the way. one of the things I like about Kevin Costner's performance in this is that there are some things that Kevin Costner does brilliantly, and one of them is wearing a white shirt with a crew cut in in a certain period of American. He I mean, he has a face that belongs in a certain period. If you think about films like JFK and all the rest of it, and he does that stuff really well. What I like about the film is this. Um, I didn't know much, I didn't know anything about the story before I heard about the film. I know there's been a lot written about it recently. And, and of course, one of the points the story is making is these are hidden stories. These are hidden figures. These are stories that need to be celebrated and need to be made more of. I know other people did, but, you know. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's a really enjoyable, welcoming, um, uh, you know, crowd-pleasing movie in the best possible sense. It's a film which is telling its story in a way that wants you to engage. So it's not in any way shy of using sort of, you know, uh, uh, cinematic language that is, some people might say it's cliched, some people might say it's contrived, some people might say it's sentimental. It's not against it, but it does it really well. It knows exactly how to uh, manipulate its audience's feelings to get them in exactly the right place for the right revelations. You know that there are things about it that are constructed. You know there are things about it that are probably taking, you know, liberties with the exact fact. You understand all that stuff is true. But what you also understand is that fundamentally there is a true story behind all this and this is attempting to tell that true story in a way which is engaging and smart and understandable. I mean, any film that involves people drawing on, you know, blackboards, you know, there's always a moment in a mathematical when people start drawing the degree and you look at it you think, this is like... I mean, this is honestly like a completely foreign language. I don't, I don't understand any of this stuff at all. And yet there's a way of doing that of somebody solving a problem that you can represent cinematically in a way which is even if you have no idea what it is that they're writing the way you kind of understand that they are finding their way towards something there's a lovely scene in which she's actually doing that specifically with a, there's a thing called the go no-go point and nobody can quite solve it and she's figured out how to solve it and she gets them she does it on the blackboard and and it works really well and I think the thing that I really liked about it is there's no uh, there's no sort of side to the film at all. It's got a very very clear narrative, very well written, performed with you know really really likable performances, done in a way that has just the right amount of you know balancing the personal stories against the larger political. I mean, also some quite eye opening because this. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do find that whole idea of the race into space absolutely awe-inspiring. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned the right stuff before. I think the idea of 
the idea of leaving the planet and going out is is an astonishing thing, particularly back in the time when nobody had ever done it before. Imagine what that must have felt like. And what the film manages to do is to relocate that sense of wonderment, relocate that sense of astonishment and awe to the people who are, you know, the hidden figures, who are figuring this stuff out. And you do get the sense that what's happening in these offices, which are segregated offices in which somebody has to go to the other side of the plant in order to get to a, you know, a segregated toilet, that all this stuff is going on whilst these problems... I, I really enjoyed it. I was really charmed by it. I mean, yes, to some extent, it is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not formally adventurous, but what it is is a film that's using the grammar of mainstream cinema in a way that it completely understands and, is, and completely win you over, and you come out of it, and I don't say this lightly, you come out of it feeling inspired and uplifted with a huge sort of, you know, with a, it, it, puts a, it puts a spring in your step because it's a very, very well-told story. Chloe Dell, who's uh, in Somerset, an MA journalism student, went to see... Uh, Please tell me she liked it. Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures is funny, heartwarming, oh, with good. a remarkable story at the heart of it. This is a brilliant example of an ensemble cast whose friendships are completely believable. Um, yeah, is it Tariji P. Henson who plays yes. Catherine? Is arguably the main character. However, Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet characters portray the intelligent and real lives of three women who defied prejudice and separatism to get men into space. An important film with an exceptional cast and score. It owes its success to the brave and intelligent black women who worked in the shadows at NASA during the space race. I'll definitely be going to see this film again. Uh, Amelia um, from Glasgow. Went to see Hidden Figures, the local cinema last week. Enjoyed it so much. I must admit, I didn't know anything about the history portrayed in the film. Me neither. However, I was absolutely captivated by the story of the three women and how they managed to progress their career during such difficult times for non-white people and women, uh, she emphasises. I loved every bit of the film, but found the story of Dorothy Vaughan and her struggles initially not being recognised as a supervisor, despite her acting role feeling left behind while her friends are being moved to other departments and progressing, and later showing an incredible determination and drive while being threatened by redundancy. I loved seeing the ambition, drive and passion in all three of the main characters and thought the film and acting really did them justice. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased because that's kind of saying more eloquently than I did what I was trying to say. You know, you do... It's a... Yeah, it's go, a... Go see. Yeah, it's a really... Good piece of cinema. Hidden, Hidden Figures is out this week. Two more uh, movies that we're going to do before 3.30 and Barry Jenkins after 3.30 when we're going to talk about Moonlight. What yeah, so next? let's do The Founder, which is a biographical drama about uh, Ray Kroc, um, uh, who, whose name, again, I didn't know before, but uh, very important in, in McDonald's. The film is uh, directed... But you, you look like you didn't know that name either. No, I just think it's a good comedy name. Okay. It lends itself to all kinds of uh, jokes, which we won't be... Very good. OK, so it's directed by John Lee Hancock, whose previous credits include Blindside and Saving Mr Banks. And so um, Michael Keaton is Ray Kroc. And at the beginning, he's a sort of travelling salesman who is desperately attempting to sell a multi-funneled uh, milkshake maker. And he's on the road and he's not doing very well. And we see him going to all these different places and basically being shown the door. And he's ringing back to his wife, uh, Laura Doan. There's sort of, you know, shades of death of a salesman about all this. There's this kind of sense of tragedy in the back of it. And then he hears from his office that there is uh, one place that has ordered not one of these machines, but a whole bunch of them. He thinks it must be a mistake. But he said, no, 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 we need a whole bunch of them. So he decides to drive down and go and see, I think it's San Bernardino that he goes to. And he finds this walk-in, walk-up burger stand where these brothers have basically designed this way of making burgers 
in a certain way, very, very fast, always the same. Everything is kind of, you know, worked out with, you know, sort of super efficiency. And he walks up and he sees everybody else coming up and everybody else buying these hamburgers and sitting down. And he and he thinks this is this is brilliant because he's been out on the road. He's been trying to get and, you know, he's never seen service like this before. So he says, please take me, show me how this is all working. And they show him how they planned the whole shop out that, you know, the person stands here with the pickles and the person stands there with the patties and the person does the thing. And it's almost like, you know, something out of Chaplin or modern times, you know, like a kind of machinery working. And he's he falls in love with the idea, but he says they have to expand. In fact, what they have to do is to franchise. Franchise. Big pardon? Franchise. Franchise the damn thing. It's too damn good for just one location. There should be McDonald's everywhere. Coast to coast. Sea to shining sea. Mr. Croft. Hey, you know, I've got a confession I want to make to you boys. I'm not out here in California for any kind of business meetings. I came out here for you. A few days ago, I got into St. Louis, Missouri, and I was doing some business, and I broke out my map. And I followed my finger on one single highway west. Route 66. Mr. Something, told me, something told me to get into my car and drive that highway. And you know where it led me? Right here. Right smack dab here. Right to this unbelievable establishment. When I saw these lines in your whole operation and I tasted your product, I knew what needed to happen. Franchise. 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 We already tried. Keyword in that sentence, obviously, is franchise. Franchise. So what then happens is he signs a deal with them and the brothers are very very nervous one brother more nervous than the other about you know well we did this before and it didn't work out and i don't know a thing and, you know we've got this thing that we do and this is what he says no 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 no, you've got to expand it so they sign a deal and then he just goes off to expand the restaurant chain to build the golden arches to create this empire what's interesting about the film is it starts off looking like an advert i mean literally looking like an advert you know, think like well, this is you know this is, this is the, the glorious story of the creation of this thing, and and uh, uh, I, I mean I can't say that I'm somebody who frequents McDonald's. Um, you know, being a veg and all, although they have yeah, I'm sure they have vegetarian options, and that that's fine. So, um, but then what happens is the relationship between him and the brothers who started this thing. And from whom he essentially said, you know, I was going to sign this piece of Johnny, and they weren't one of them worried that this was perhaps not the greatest idea to get into bed with this guy. Who, you know, on the one hand, at the beginning, he seemed like I said a slightly tragic figure, and yet somebody who has, you know, belief and, and, and vision, all the rest of it, and it gradually starts to go sour. And what's really good about it is that the way it goes sour happens, you know, not quite imperceptibly. But gently enough that it never does that cliched thing about somebody who seemed to be one thing suddenly turns on a dime and turns into something else. What you realise is that all those things that you kind of found slightly sympathetic and engaging about the character that Keaton is playing at the beginning are exactly the same things that start to make him intolerable and insufferable and untrustworthy. And you get a film which is a portrait of somebody who seems, you know, a bit crazy, but charming, but essentially narcissistic, who actually turns out to be really crazy and very, very narcissistic and very, very driven in a way which will make him untrustworthy in terms of a business deal. And so the whole film then starts to seem like, you know, it's an old story, but it's also a contemporary story. It's a story about 
um, you know, business dealing. It's a story about something small being turned into something big and on the way losing something, particularly suddenly it's to do with powdered milkshakes as opposed to milk in milkshakes. And there is this argument going on between the brothers about what it was that they were setting up and him about what it is that he thinks he's doing, which ends up coming down essentially to an argument about who owns their name. And the more the movie goes on, the darker it becomes. And again, I I saw it not knowing much about it at all, just knowing that it was, uh, you know, uh, Michael Keaton, who I think is, a, a, you know, Michael Keaton has had a, a Keatonissance. He has, hasn't he? I mean, he really has, because there was a point when Michael Keaton's career was not doing so well at all. He's in, like, the worst movies ever. He was in... I mean, it was it was weird. He'd gone from, you know, these kind of great movies like Batman, and then suddenly he was making terrible films, and then he refound his feet. He was in things like Birdman, which is obviously, you know, really interesting film. In this, his performance is very... I think it is very well played because he manages to do that thing about taking taking a character who, at first, you're kind of rooting for. And as I said, the clever thing about it is all the things that kind of makes you kind of root for him at the beginning are all the things that kind of make you not root for him as the film goes on. I, the portrayal of the brothers is uh, really well done, John Carroll Lynch and Nick Offerman. And the film manages to keep an even keel and not tip over into just simply making you know, this good, this bad. I mean, it tells its story in fairly broad strokes, but they are broad strokes that are that are are, are committed with with a degree of subtlety that I didn't expect from the story. Uh, I mean, it's not it's you know not life changing, but it it was much better than I expected it to be. It's not super size me. It's not super size. Would it, would it work as a double bill? You know, it wouldn't not work as a double bill. Actually, weirdly enough, which one would you show first? You'd show you'd show this first and then supersize okay. me. Uh, yes, actually, if you, that would be a great double bill. Jordan Allen in Sterling just come back from a super special screening of Michael Keaton's new comedy drama, The Founder. Would you describe it as a comedy drama? There are moments of comedy okay. in it. Um, My cinema going trio all agreed that this movie was great. In okay. the first act, the film seems like it's going to be a happy, cheesy, happy meal for all the family. A fantastic success story of our commercial times. However, I think the real strengths in this film lie in the slightly dark, questionable values of our main protagonist. <laughs> it easily uh, matches the six laughed test and marching past it in the first half hour. But what's most interesting about The Founder is the deeply is the deep character study on which it embarks, easily the equal of this year's Jackie and Hacksaw Ridge in terms of an insight into a character's life. The movie didn't shy away from showing just how reprehensible Ray Kroc was. He isn't an admirable husband, nor is he a nice man. It resonates with Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross in terms of the portrayal of business at war. There's no room for niceness. My one problem with the movie... Uh, is one it shares with The Big Short. There are very few strong female characters to speak of at all. Laura Dern does do a lot of waiting at home for the phone to ring. All of the women hang on the arms of their menfolk, doughy-eyed, their lives revolving around their husbands. Some might say that the founder is a two-hour advertisement. Well, for us, it worked. All three of us ended up in the local... Uh, hamburger restaurant immediately after the screening with I'm a great surprised. great big smile on our faces i gave it five quarter pounders with cheese <laughs> out of five and if you could give a big what's up to our cinema group it might help our mission to convert them to the church uh, jordan allen instead so jordan goes to see it 
then goes to McDonald's. Well, there we go. So much of what you uh, get take from a movie is what you bring to it. Exactly. So it's uh, 3.26, Barry Jenkins after the news. What are we doing next? So I do The Great Wall. So um, uh, Matt Damon, uh, Pedro Pascal, William and Tovar, mercenaries seeking a magical black powder in, in Imperial China. This magical black powder has changed the nature of warfare. It's explosive. Has changed the nature of warfare. After being attacked by a what is it? What is it? monster, you know, bang, it's bang powder. Okay. Yeah. It's explosive. Yeah. After being attacked by a monster, they, uh, they cut off its hand and then run to what? Yeah, what? Bear, bear with me, right? They cut off its hand. They run towards the Great Wall. They still have its hand. They are taken prisoner, but their captors are impressed by the fact that they have fought a monster, the mythical uh, Tao Te, a mythical beast which kind of look like dinosaurs, who are all swarm around a controlling queen. And it turns out that one of the reasons that the wall is there, the Great Wall is there, is to keep these monsters at bay. Oh. But they're very, very impressed that these people who've come, they've taken prisoner, have managed to cut the hand off a monster because maybe they've discovered something about fighting monsters that they didn't know before. And could it perhaps have something to do with the fact that Matt Damon is carrying a magnet? I'm not making any of this stuff up. So the whole scene is set for a great big, uh, you know, beasties versus... uh, Beasties versus people combating beasties whilst doing an impression of Cirque du Soleil. Okay. It's a weird film. Um, It was one of those movies. I'm quite looking forward to it. Well, the weird thing is I was kind of looking forward to it, uh, you know, before it started. And at the end of it, I thought, well, you know, that was hugely silly and not entirely without entertainment value, but basically much too baggy and uh, much too long. Directed by uh, Zhang Yimou, who's a fine director and somebody who does understand how to do a spectacular set piece. So, for example, one of the ways in which they fight the beasties is they have the Great Wall and then there are these long sort of sticky out podiums which people hang off on the end of multicoloured ropes whilst doing swingy stuff. All that stuff's sort of very impressive. You know, it's kind of like some extraordinary Olympic ceremony but with marauding beasties. But for the most part, it is a build-up to the Battle of Helm's Deep Restaged uh, by you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah, well, from, what, so what year is this? So it's it's well it, it's it's Song Dynasty. So it's in, it's a, it's uh, here's the best way of describing what it is. It's a long time ago, in a place that, that didn't actually exist, not in the real world. But the most important thing is this, the most important thing is this. All the stuff that's going on in terms of the plot and the narrative that there's double crossing and, you know, Matt and his partner, they both want different things. Then Willem Dafoe turns up and he's been taken prisoner before, but then maybe they'll all just escape with the, with the magic powder. Is all just a preamble to the fact that they're going to have a great big spectacular fight with Beasties. And the problem with it is, I mean, it is, it is very silly, very, very silly. Not silly enough to be a kind of camp classic but very very silly and all the time you're watching it you think i did do this before i did do it with lord of the rings the difference was with lord of the rings it was all happening in middle earth and it didn't have matt damon experimenting with a range of different accents before deciding basically to do matt damon uh luke farmer on this email well uh I don't really know what to say or which accent to say it in. There we go. There we go. It looked beautiful, but constantly seemed to be a couple of mouse clicks away from looking more like a video game than a movie. And unfortunately, yeah. the 3D we were forced to watch it in didn't help with this. Visually, it was really stunning. The first proper set piece made me think, wow, we're in for a treat, despite the wonky script. But after that, there were no action scenes that could match it and the plot didn't go anywhere. And then there's the question, so many questions. Why the insane and too brief explanation of how the Tao Te got there? Yes. What was the point of the mountain being blue? <laughs> who, was the, who, who was the person they mentioned that had been warning them that the Tao Te were... 
becoming more advanced. Did it really just take the... <laughs> Had they never encountered magnets before? Why, <laughs> Willem Dafoe, why? But still, it looked lovely, and I guess I enjoyed it whilst... There is a watching. brilliant bit at the beginning when, when uh, Matt Damon says... Somebody says, what are we going to do with this magnet? And Matt Damon says, I'll have that. And they go, why? And he says, I can make a compass out of it. And you go, that magnet is a paperweight. That's not, this is a plot point that is going to be significant. Talking Moonlight with Barry Jenkins in just a second. TV movie of the week, Stephen Biddle says, special salute for Hot Fuzz as it's uh, turned 10 this week. Uh, I know it's on every other hour on ITV2. It is, it's so yes. densely packed with the fun is it's one of the most endlessly rewatchable movies of all time. Dwayne Coleman, Simon will be watching The Road again as he loved it so much the first time. Personally, I love the film and the book even more. Mark will choose Midnight Express because he likes a Tell the Time challenge. A Tell the Time challenge. When's that on? Because it's on five past midnight, Tuesday the 21st of February on Talking Pictures TV. Uh, Nicholas Brent says, my pick of the week and what I hope Mark will pick is the remains of the day because A, it's really great, B, Emma Thompson and C, Anthony Hopkins is in it as well. Sir, Anthony Hopkins. What's not to love? Anyway, what is our TV movie of the week? Well, I'm going to say two things. Firstly, I am going to go for Midnight Express, which is on Talking Pictures TV at five past midnight, Tuesday the 21st. Not least because, you know, extraordinary and awards garlanded uh, electronic score, brilliant performances by uh, John Hurt and Brad Davis. And I had I had to revisited it recently because of something that I was uh, that I was writing about. And it is it's a film that really, really stands up. I do however, want to say that. Last week, I omitted to realise that last night on television was uh, Notes on Blindness, which is one of my favourite films of last year. It is, however, now on BBC iPlayer. I apologise sincerely for not flagging that up before, but you can get it on iPlayer, and I would advise everybody to do so. And in fact, I would say that it is my iPlayer film of the week, uh, We don't even have an No, I know, I've just made it up. Well, you're not having a new feature... You can't have another feature. Okay, it's on iPlayer. Go Thanks. find it. Have you, uh, seriously, you should go. No, it I've is such it. a... Br- it. Yeah. Did you see it? I've seen it. When did you see it? Why, why are you so surprised that I've seen it? Of no, because I've when did it. you see it? I saw it at Christmas. Did you? Yes. Did you love it? I did enjoy it, yes. I'm just amazed that we haven't had this conversation. Well, it hasn't been on iPlayer for a while. Oh, okay, fine. Okay. All right. right. Anyway. Are we not talking about Midnight Express? I'm talking about Notes on Blindness. I know. Okay, fine. I'm talking about Notes on Blindness too. Okay, fine. Thanks right. for patronising. So here we go. Uh, I think you started it. So let's talk about Ooh, Moonlight. This is so grown up. Here comes a clip uh, of Moonlight, because we're going to be speaking to Barry Jenkins in just a second. Here's a clip featuring Alex Hibbert as the young incarnation of the lead character, Chiron, and Mahershala Ali as Juan. I was a wild little shorty, man. Just like you. Running around with no shoes on, the moon's out. This one time, I run by this old lady. I was running, hollering, cutting a food, boy. This old lady, she stopped me. She said, running around, catching a boy that light. In moonlight, black boys look blue. You blue. That's why I gonna call you. Blue. Say your name, Blue. <laughs> nah. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. 
And that's a clip from Moonlight, and I'm delighted to say that its writer and director, Barry Jenkins, is with us. In fact, he's just stepped off a plane. In fact, it's a privilege to see you, Barry. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks I for having me. I hope that coffee will get you through <laughs> yeah. uh, the next 15 minutes. And I have to, well, congratulations on what must be a fairly kind of head-spinning last couple of months for you. Yeah, it has been. And I'm glad you framed it as a, a couple of months. You know, it's been a pretty interesting journey, I'll say, going back to our premiere at Telluride. So how long ago was the premiere? Uh, it was, uh, I guess, the first weekend in September. So maybe five months, which is crazy to even say it out loud. And what happened then? Was there press and buzz immediately? or You know, what? there was some press and buzz immediately out of Telluride. But I think things shifted at Toronto. Uh, we had our first uh, really massive screening at the Toronto Film Festival. And then after I left, they started adding more and more press screenings because people wanted to see the film. And at that point, I realized, well, if if people are, are going back two and three times to wait for a press screening to try and see this film, uh, clearly something is happening. The word has gotten out. And what was it that was happening? That's what I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued about. We'll talk about the movie in, in just mm-hmm. a second. But in terms of the, the mechanics or the chemistry of what people were saying, what is it that they were reacting to, do you think? I, I can't really put my finger on it. I know what was happening was people were saying, have you seen Moonlight right. um, at that festival? And if you hadn't seen it, <laughs> people were saying you should go see it. And I think what uh, what I saw in the few screenings that I got to sit in or, and do Q&As of at Tell You Right in Toronto was that People hadn't seen a character like this centered in a narrative. And I think the journey that they go on with this character, Chiron, uh, was moving them in ways that I didn't even anticipate. Okay. Uh, we shall conclude this interview with a list of everything you've been nominated for and won, because that's an appropriate place to put it, and we'll put it at the end. Okay. But you, <laughs> mentioned, right. you mentioned Chiron. He's right front and center. It's his kind of story. You tell the story in three acts. Just Well, tell us the story of, uh, of Moonlight and who this man is. Yeah, Moonlight is a coming-of-age story uh, about this kid, Chiron, growing up in Liberty City. It's like a housing project uh, right in the center of Miami, Florida, which is where I'm from, and the playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney is also from. Uh, and we kind of chart this character's life over the course of uh, three stages. You know, once when he's around 10 years old, again during his high school years, and then we revisit him uh, when he's a, a young man in his late 20s. Um, and we just drop in for a few moments. You know, I describe them as the most pivotal moments uh, in the coming of age of a quarter lifer. Um, and it's, uh, I think, because of the setting and the things that the character uh, is going through, um, it's one of those stories that people come out of the cinema saying they haven't seen before. And it's three distinct acts that we have, and he has three different names, really, in each act. You just want to explain the significance of what he's called in each in each story. Yeah, in the first story, he's called Little, um, which is a name that's given to him by the, the, the boys in the neighborhood who are sort of bullying him. In the second story, he actually is referred to as Chiron, which is his given name by his mother. And in the third story, he's adopted a nickname uh, that was given to him by a friend uh, called Black. And so each chapter follows uh, the name of the character. And I think the other element of it that we didn't mention uh, just now is that in each different section, uh, the main character is embodied by a different actor. So as the name changes, you literally see a different physical representation of the character. Uh, the casting is is extraordinary. Um, can you say something about the order in which you went for the different, the three different Chirons because they are, you know, you've done an extraordinary job. Who came first? Do you start with the kid and get older? Do you start with the older guy and work backwards? No, it's interesting. We actually started in the middle. Uh, We started with Ashton Sanders, who was the first person to audition for any part in this film. 
And because he was the first person, of course, he came back over and over and over again. Because I thought it couldn't be the first person. Um, and then from directors here, always say that, and you know, he's the very first person that we saw. I, I know. I, I just <laughs> never think I'll get that lucky, you know. But uh, in this film, I've been very fortunate. Um, and so then uh, Travante Rhodes came in, who plays the character in the third story, and I actually didn't think he was right for the part. Physically, when I first saw him, you know, I judged him. I thought he was too masculine. Too, yeah. yeah, just too buff. You know, it just, I, I didn't think that he could have the sensitivity and the vulnerability that I think the character needed. And then I let him audition. And of course, I saw this well of sadness, this, to be honest, this little boy, you know, that was on the inside uh, in his essence. And I thought if the audience can make the same journey in the cinema that I just made in the audition process, the film will work. And my thinking was if I knew where the character was going to end up, I'd have a better read on where he had to begin. Uh, and so we went back to Miami to find a non-actor to play uh, Little, the main character in the first chapter. A non-actor? Well, I guess he's young, so so that wouldn't be a surprise, but that's going to be quite a challenge for you. you so how old is, is the boy who actually plays the first Chiron? He was 11 years old when okay. we filmed. He looks slightly younger than that. Have you have you worked, have you directed an eleven year old before? No, I've only directed uh, my previous uh, child directing experience was with a five year old playing a five year old. It was very interesting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now this I mean this mixture. I know you're a fan of Lynn Ramsey, but it's an interesting dynamic when you have like first time actors, debut actors, or non actors, mm -hmm. as you say, with really established, well-known Naomi Harris, for example, now Oscar-nominated because yeah. of you. Well, because of her. Because of us. That must, make, that must make for an extraordinary kind of dynamic onset, doesn't it? You know, it does. And I'm glad you mentioned Lynn. You know, when I was in film school, I watched, you know, uh, Morvan Callen and, and Ratcatcher quite a bit, especially Ratcatcher, because on the DVD, she gave all these interviews about her process, blending actors with non-actors. And you know, in that first chapter, Mahershala Ali, who's also Academy Award nominated yeah. for his portrayal of Juan, he's working primarily with Alex Hibbert. And what I love uh, that happens is, as a trained actor, you get used to, if you give out a, a stimulus, you're going to get a certain response and vice versa. When you're working with a non-actor, you, can, you can't expect anything to come back at you that's going to fit the form, you know, of a, of a certain kind of performance. And I think uh, having Alex be there and be so, not, not even raw, but just being so intuitive uh, and not have these sort of performance crutches to lean back on, I think it livened everyone else up uh, in the scenes around him. So Sharon is the central uh, character and story who we follow, but you mentioned Mahershala Ali, and uh, when he gets, and he's the first character that we see, and when he gets out of the car, I'm thinking, I've seen you before, I've seen you before, wherever, and of course, it's, uh, he, he plays the fixer in House of Cards, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking, that's who you are. Okay, so now I've got him, but he, that performance that he puts in is, extraordinary and no surprise that he's been he's been nominated because it's not his story but he is so important for that first Chiron. Exactly and I think too uh, because he gives such uh, I think a full-bodied performance I think he, his whole his whole essence uh, is in his performance of that character I think he carries on into the second chapter into the third chapter his presence remains with our main character um, as it needs to. You know, I love that you mentioned Remy Danton on House of Cards. You know, Remy Danton is not considered a criminal, you know. In some ways, he's not even considered immoral. Uh, and yet, they but are... he's both of those. <laughs> ex he's both of those, you know. And they are essentially the same man. But Juan, of course, when you first meet him, you think you know who this criminal is. And then, of course, Mahershala, over the course of that first chapter, uh, defies all expectations and I think rewrites uh, the story of what normally is considered a stereotype. 
Well, I just wonder if that's if that's the heart of the film. Then, if that's what people were saying when they were saying to each other, "Have you seen Moonlight?" That actually they thought they were going to see one film, and they came out thinking, "No, actually, that isn't." what I was expecting to see, and maybe I haven't seen that before. Exactly, and I think part of that has to do uh, with the, the characters and the story and things like that. I think also uh, part of it has to do with, if I tell you I'm, I'm gonna show you a film about a poor black boy growing up in the projects with a mom addicted to crack cocaine, you know, who's struggling with his sexuality, you think of a very social realist sort of film. You know, an action film looks a certain way, a horror film looks a certain way. You know, a very social realist uh, depiction of life in the hood looks a certain way. Our film, I think, in form, uh, defies those categorizations. Um, I think it's a very unique experience. You mentioned the playwright who you uh, were working with on this, Terrell Alvin McCraney. How much, this is, part of this is your, is is both of your story, because you both grew up in the same uh, area. Yeah, exactly. But essentially, it's his it's his tale. Yeah, it, it is. I think uh, you know he first uh, wrote this in two thousand three. I think it was almost in a, in a way an attempt at writing a memoir. You know, this character that Mahershala plays Juan was a real person in Terrell's life, um, and then the character played by Naomi uh, Paula was based on his actual mom. Uh, when the piece came to me. I realized there was so much of my life and Terrell's life that unfolded pretty much exactly the same in the same space at the same time. And so it was a very organic and fluid process of blending those things uh, in a certain way, um, but still being respectful to the fact that the piece was semi-autobiographical for the playwright. Does that not make it also quite painful for you as well? As I understand, your mother uh, is out of rehab and is doing okay, but... Was uh, was was addicted? Uh, was an addict and still hasn't seen this film. Yeah, she. I mean, she gave me her blessing uh, to make it, um, and yeah, and she has read every single and watched every single interview Naomi Harris has ever given about playing her in this film. Uh, and yet, I think watching the actual film itself is something that she hasn't been able to bring herself to do uh, yet. And I respect that. You know, it's one thing for me to create uh, these images. I think it's another to force someone else to have to ingest them. Is that because she doesn't yet understand what it was like for you? Um, it's possible, yeah. You know, I, I've always, in my mind, framed it as uh, I think it would be very difficult to watch someone, you know, as gifted and skilled and dedicated uh, as Naomi was in this film, uh, bring these things to life. You know, it's basically like holding up a mirror in a certain way. But um, maybe the other element of it is just as true. Uh, I think watching our main character go through these things. Um, might uh, I don't want them to project any any guilt or, or shame onto her, but maybe those are things she's fearful uh, mm. of feeling as she watches the piece, no doubt. And we, sh- and we should absolutely mention that one of the key stories that that we run with, there are many different aspects of approaching this story, but there's some that Chiron realized, that his classmates realized that there's something different about him, which is why he's picked on. And there's a very moving scene very early on where he says, uh, and I quote, what is what is a faggot? Mm-hmm. And they have that conversation with uh, Mahershala Ali, and you feel his pain. And then we follow him growing up as gay uh, in Miami, going through all the changes that you've that you've just mentioned, Barry. And I wonder again if that was one part of the power of this film is because people again, it's maybe it's part of a story that they haven't seen before. Yeah, and and I think that you know. I give so much credit to uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney for going to that place. And, and, and I'll say, bearing his soul in a certain way, that there was the space to have these conversations, you know, to create these characters who could have these conversations that 
that in some ways I think we assume uh, don't take place. You know, I've never seen uh, a black man cradle a black boy in any film I've ever seen. Um, and now in this film, uh, people are seeing them. You know, they were going into the Toronto Film Festival and seeing Mahershala Ali cradle Alex Hibbert in the middle of the ocean. And I think um, when you have this lack of images and then they suddenly appear, um, sometimes it can strike you down, you know, I think in a good way, not not strike you down and smite. It can strike you yeah, down yeah, in a good okay. way. I, I guess when um, when you talk about doing a movie in Miami, in the UK, the image that won't come to most people people's minds is Liberty City. It may well be that hardly anyone listening to this program now has been to Liberty City. What is it? What is it like? And you filmed there as well. Give us a, a picture of what it what it would be like to walk through. To walk through, uh, I mean, these days it's uh, it's a very depressed neighborhood. You know, at, at moments uh, during the day, it can seem like you're the only person in the world. Uh, and then at night, it can seem like uh, you hope you are the only person in the world um, because in the darkness, the, the neighborhood can seem quite sinister. Um, growing up, it was the only life I knew, and so it was normal to me. You contextualize your surroundings. I didn't realize I had a rough childhood until I met other kids who had grown up in the suburbs. Um, but, you know, this is character of Teresa, you know, Mahershala Ali's uh, girlfriend in the film, played by Janelle Monet. She's fantastic. She's great. And, and I love that, you know, because I remember growing up, and even if we didn't have food to eat, there was someone in the neighborhood whose house you could go to to eat. And they had maybe just as little as you did, but no child would go unfed. You still had to go back home at the end of the day because you are someone's child. But I just remember it as being a very uh, tough place, but, but also there was a community. Uh, and when we made the film, the community definitely rallied around us. So here's the credit roll. Uh, Moonlight, writer and director Barry Jenkins, nominated for six Golden Globes. It won the best drama. Four BAFTAs, nominated for screenplay picture, uh, supporting actor and actress. Eight Oscar nominations. You and you and Damien Sherrill just tearing up the place, <laughs> you youngsters. Uh, best director, best adapted screenplay, best picture, best supporting Nods for Naomi Harris and Mahershala Ali. I mean, that is astonishing. And we're sitting here in a in a big London hotel. What are you? You, you, you know, what are you thinking? You know what? What I always think, or what I've had to think over the last the last few days, is you watch this film, and myself and Terrell McCraney, we basically are this character. You watch this movie, you don't think this kid is going to grow up and make a piece of art that wins a Golden Globe, or make a piece of art that gets nominated for eight Academy Awards. And yet he has, because I'm sitting here and it's happened. And, uh, and it humbles me, man. Um, and, and I hope it gives people hope uh, who are still back, back home. So the Oscars aren't too white anymore? Uh, apparently not. Not this year. You know, you got all of us. You got Dev holding it down. I mean, yeah, apparently not. Well, and, and more broadly, what do you hope for this movie? Uh, you know, I want more and more people to see it. I flew in this morning from Rotterdam, and the screening there last night was amazing could not be farther away from liberty city in miami florida uh and yet again people come into the cinema and you know and they walk a mile in chiron's shoes you know i want to take his shoes as far and wide as possible and what are you working on next barry uh i'm adapting the book the underground railroad by colson whitehead um, which is a lovely little piece where the underground railroad is actually a railroad that runs underground wow uh, we look forward to that. Barry Jenkins, all the best for uh, for the Oscars when it comes around. I know that's not the most important thing in your life, but he knocks on wood. Uh, Barry Jenkins, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, the delightful Barry Jenkins, who, as, as we said in the interview, was jet-lagged. He had just walked off the plane. He had a cup of coffee there at the beginning. That is That knock on wood sounds almost too 
tight and clever. Uh, you think it might be me doing it, but he, it was the second time he was not normal. It's an extraordinary example of somebody responding in whole, coherent, magnificently constructed sentences, isn't it? You kind of listen to that and think, what would I give to be able to talk that fluently, that fluidly about oh, you know, he was very, about cinema? Uh, he, and he was uh, warm and smiling, very professorial, really, in that sense. Professorial, professorial. Um, yes, that's, that's exactly the correct I'm now word. going to tell you things, and you're going to sit and listen. I'm thinking, yes, I am. I'm going to sit and listen. But also, I'm going to listen to your questions, and I'm going to engage them. And I have to say, incidentally, although it was a very, very different interview, both our interviews uh, this week, with that <laughs> and Keanu, they're very, very different. But, but, it's, but, but, but you know, both in their own way... And you'd spend time with both of them. If Keanu said, you go out for a t- cup of tea? You'd you go, go yeah. yes. He said, do you want to bring, want to bring Barry? He said, yeah, it's fine. Where should we go? Uh, go down anyway, the pub. So there it is. So the two numbers of the, of the show, 141, that's the number of people Keanu kills in John Wick. Eight, that's the Oscar <laughs> nomination. Did you count that or was it? Oh, it's, it's, uh, you give up after. It's an intra-web fact, is it? Uh, and eight nominations for Moonlight. Uh, what do you think? I think Moonlight is just magnificent. And... Um, it's one of those films, the first time I saw it, and I've seen it a couple of times now, the first time I saw it, I was really blown away by it because I didn't know what to expect. I knew that the subject matter, that it was a story of, you know, somebody coming of age in a tough neighbourhood and, uh, you know, knew about the, the uh, Liberty City setting. And as Barry Jenkins himself said in that interview, you start to expect a certain kind of film. And you get something which is so different. You get a triptych, a story which is told, uh, three separate individual sequences from a life in which the same character is played by three different actors. The, cap- the chapters are named by the identities that he, is, that he assumes or he is given, so it's little Chiron and Black. And during the course of the film, you see this character grow and develop and change and be shaped by their environment, but also shape themselves one of the questions that that keeps uh, coming up is you know about identity who do you think you are you have to decide who you are you have to make yourself who you are at one point uh, when the character is called black he says i built i rebuilt myself from the ground up and so the film is about identity the first time i saw it i was just really impressed by the the way in which uh, barry jenkins who you know made medicine for melancholy had this extraordinary grasp of cinema and of storytelling and had taken this experimental drama project and turned it into something that was a really you know unbelievably accomplished uh, work the second time i saw it it just and i you know i i know that we joke about how often i cry in movies but it just reduced me to floods of tears in a really good way there is a moment in it in which Sharon says, you know, um, sometimes I cry so much, I fear that I'll just turn into drops. And Kevin says, yeah, and flow out into the ocean. And of course, water is a really big part of the story. And we heard it in the clip, it was all a wash. Absolutely. And you hear the sound of the ocean is the first thing you hear. And there's the baptismal waters. There's the image of his face going into a sink full of ice water and coming out redefined, full of resolve. There is the the film itself, which is about a personality which is changing and yet immutable, like the ocean, the waves rising and falling, but the sea stays the same. This kind of timeless poetic quality. And immediately what you notice is that the way in which you're talking about them, the way in which one is that anyone's talking about the film, is not in terms of the, you know, the, the toughest of although it's absolutely about a tough life and about, you know, drug addiction and drug dealing and, you know, and and, and abuse and bullying and all those things. But there is beauty in there. There is such beauty in it. As a piece of uh, 
cinema. Um, I mean, for a start, the way in which it's shot, which is rich and textured and oversaturated, it's like a, a kind of waking dream, like a fever dream. It's a film which has a tactile quality in which you can, you know, you can breathe the air in, you can feel the life, you can feel the expectation. It's a film which merges between a kind of dream state and a reality without ever, I mean, you know, you it's not a neo-realist film, but it's a film which absolutely has its feet and its hands in, you know, in a real and tangible ground. I think the performances are across the board, uh, breathtakingly good. And what that suggests is not just that the performers themselves are doing great work, but that they're being directed in a way by somebody who understands how to get the best out of their performers. And again, that's also to do with working with the cinematographer, James Axon, I think, who, when we, f the very, very first shot is this circling shot, which follows uh, Herschel Ali's character as he comes in a car and gets out of the car and walks onto the street. And, and it's breathtaking. One of the things that's breathtaking about it is you don't really notice how breathtaking it is. It's only the second time round that you start to notice that. The second thing is musically, it's, you know, it's a kind of minor key miracle, the way in which it takes the uh, Nicholas Bretel's uh, uh, original score and blends this with uh, very, very well chosen pop tunes and also kind of music which is slowed down, music which is slewed, music which is, which is skewed to kind of create this sense of yearning, which carries on as the character moves from boyhood into manhood. It's a film which also has, frankly, surreal moments in it. I mean, this extraordinary shot of Naomi Harris apparently moving backwards, almost moving backwards in time, caught in this pink-purple light, which is almost like something out of a kind of Blade Runner-y science fiction films. And when you start, you know, talking to or listening to uh, Barry Jenkins talking about his influences, when he's talking about Claire Denis and he's talking about Carlos Regardas and he's talking about Wong Kar Wai and he's talking about Lynn Ramsey. Now, interestingly enough, you know, the fact that he that loves, could, I, I know, I know it's in the, in the, there's a longer version of that interview. And it's in the longer the version. Podcast, yeah, so. absolutely. And the, the Lynn Ramsey connection is really, really important because he, because uh, I have spoken to Barry Jenkins too. And he said that, when he was watching Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher, he felt, I know these kids, I understand these, I understand that life, although it's, a, which is completely different from his own. And it, what it was, was that he, he loved the way in which her films absolutely took you into the central lives of the characters. And I think there is a really strong comparison between what he's doing and what Lynn Ramsey is doing. I genuinely think, remark, uh, that, that Moonlight is a breathtakingly beautiful and adventurous film. As a piece of cinema, it's just jaw-droppingly accomplished. As a social realist document, it has the absolutely, you know, the authentic smack of truth. As a piece of drama, as in terms of the writing and the performance, it's almost impossible to find a foot that it puts wrong. In terms of its use of music, it is constructed with an ear for the right piece of music at the right time. I am running out of superlatives. You and you have run out of time. So our movie of the week then is obviously going John Wick to too. be John Wick. <laughs> Moonlight, <laughs> clearly. Moonlight. But you have to, I have been saying this for a while, haven't I? You the have. first thing I said to you was this. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Mark and I are off. Sanjeev Bhaskar and Robbie Collin will be here with their special guest, Hugh Jackman. The podcast will be available very shortly. Thank you for listening. OK, well, ready when you are, big boys. <laughs> please leave that in the podcast please tell me you were recording simon mayo saying ready when you are big boys no that wasn't we weren't recording then um, yeah we were 
And now, since it's the podcast, I'm allowed to say that Robin's joke was that it should have been called the Legover movie. Some people might find that kind of smut funny, but I, for one, am shocked. Simon, this is the best smut. It's it's, it's high quality, it's smut. high quality smut. Huge. Uh, we ran out of time because you were going on and on about how great Moonlight. But hang on, hang on, hang on. But, 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 yeah, but, yeah, it, but sorry, I'm going to go and see it again. It, isn't it great? It is. It is. I was less blown away than you are, but I'm uh, I'm going to go away and uh, and go see it again. I mean, I I I'm just. I am, and but this is. Didn't I say this to you when I the first time I said it? And I saw it again this week, when I saw it first, you know, before Christmas. Didn't I say to you, it's just. I mean, yes, I have been at this level of excitement about yes, it for you, quite some time. Yes, you certainly have. Sorry, am I getting tiresome? No, never. And you know what will happen? Oh, will people come up to me and go, "I heard your review of Moonlight." No, but they'll go up and say, "I heard your review of The Great Wall." That sounds rubbish. Yeah. Think the the only thing is sort of. Um, it's a bit like La La Land or whatever. You know, you raise the expectations to such a level. I know, but Moonlight has broad think, shoulders and can bear it. Just to go, best to go in and just go. I've heard quite a few good things about it. I, I like the sound of that Barry guy. Let's go see the movie. Okay, but and what then, am I? But what am I going to do? I mean, I can't say yeah, it's all right, because it's not just all right. You don't need to say anything else because you've made your you've made your pitch. Have I made it clear that <laughs> I think that I will be anyway? Here's Patrick Crow. This is my first time writing. I mean, he's into literally it. talking across me, like literally. Well, that's some, what's happening. Somebody has to because otherwise, that this bit of the podcast will be just you, and you've already taken the last half hour to tell us about Moonlight. Mm. So you can come Moonlight, back. The Moonlight section, the Moonlight review section was Robin seven and a half minutes tops. Seven and a half minutes. Shall I pack my bag while you tell no. us about Moonlight again? No. Patrick Crowe says, I just want to get the listener's voice on, okay? The voice of the... Oh, I love that. Suddenly you're the voice of the people. I am. That is my role. Patrick Crowe, this is my first time emailing to your show after becoming an avid listener over the last year or so. Because barristers are self-employed sole traders in Ireland, I've been lucky enough, time-wise, to see nearly all the films I wanted to over the last year. Without a whisper of hesitation, Moonlight is the best film I have seen this year or Or any year. Yeah. Every element of the film is flawless, from the tone, score, acting, cinematography, to the succinct dialogue, which, though realistic, is both profound and prophetic in its elegance. I notice you're not telling this uh, listener to cut it short. Well, no, because this is what I do. This is the bit where I read the listener's views to you, and then you splutter. What I found most impressive is that each of the three actors were able to exude the inner turmoil, dignity and shyness of the protagonist. This is especially the case in respect of Trevanti Rhodes, who through the softening of his outer facade in the final embers of the film, conveys the central decency and sadness of Chiron. One could write a thesis on the metaphorical significance of the lapping sea alone. Truly mesmeric. I think I kind of did, didn't I? Yeah. Um, This from Will Peters. The moment Barry Jenkins dropped me into 1980s Miami, I felt present in the film. I could have sat in any cinema screening in the world and been transported to that time, that place, in a way that few other films I've seen have ever done. The backdrop of War on Drugs Miami, complemented by my previous viewing of the 13th, was raw. Well done, Naomi Harris, who apparently was on set for three days. Yeah, I know. Astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing. And at the time, uh, transcendently beautiful. See the baptism swimming scene. All three actors playing Chiron were also brilliant, were so brilliantly complimented. For moments, I felt like I was actually watching the same person several years 
apart. There was a moment, actually, where it, it felt a bit like a Richard Linklater film from that point of view. Oh, that's interesting. Kind of big spaces. You mean like Boyhood? Mm-hmm. OK, yeah, OK. The filming and cinematography expertly portrayed the isolation of a young man in three stages of his life who was struggling to embrace himself and the community from which he arose. If I close my eyes now, I can see the lingering stare of middle third Chiron as he breaks the fourth wall, and I, who have no idea of his pain, totally understand him. The film will stay with me for the rest of my life, especially the final scene. What Barry Jenkins has done is produce an important and visceral film with stunning visuals, a terrific ensemble cast and a beautiful screenplay. I laughed, I sobbed, I gasped, I winced and I sobbed some more. What a truly brilliant piece of cinema. Will Peters, prospective film and education PhD student. Brilliant. And 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 how... Sorry, I know this, this sounds like a really stupid thing to say, but how brilliant that Barry Jenkins was on the programme talking about it because I do think that in years to come it's going to be one of the films that is really going to stand out and you're going to we're going to, you're going to remember that you know oh yeah yeah he came on and talked about it he, he came on the show and hopefully he'll stay like that and always want to come on and talk yeah. about the show it'd be like you know whoever was doing a movie show when Citizen Kane came out did you have Orson Wells on that wasn't week? that us it was us we're that's on how old we are no no we didn't have Orson uh, one had, more uh, Matthew Jones from County Westmeath in Ireland um this past Monday, I attended a packed screening of uh, the Barry Jenkins film, his sophomore effort, excited, but cautiously so, because after so much praise, yeah, Lord, it's an anticipation. I was slightly concerned that the film couldn't possibly meet my expectations, but I needn't have worried. There we go. I stepped out of said screening feeling different, dazed. I felt a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes. When yes. I arrived home, I struggled to formulate even the most monosyllabic of words. Yes. Why did I leave in such an intensely emotional state? Because Moonlight is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Wow, we are are really talking... No, but but there we go, you see? When Barry Jenkins has achieved... What he's achieved here is nothing short of extraordinary. He's painted a triptych portrait of connection, sexuality, tolerance, masculinity and love that's both epic and intimate, being small in setting but universal in emotional scope. Last week, Mark effectively quoted Roger Ebert in his review of 20th Century Women, stating that films are machines for empathy. To this point, Moonlight is a film that has empathy for all of its characters, so much so that it is one of the most compassionate and sensitive films I've seen in years. In a lesser work, some characters may have been little more than thinly drawn sketches, but here everyone is treated equally and bestowed depth by the slightest of gestures. A notable, deeply affecting example is an early dinner sequence between the prepubescent Chiron and the drug dealer Juan and his partner Teresa, which packs so much emotional complexity and nuance into its few minutes that it becomes genuinely staggering. Moonlight is lyrical, dazzling and, to run the risk of pretension, poetic. It's a testament to the film's brilliance that Jenkins achieves the difficult dichotomy of using bold pronounced aesthetic choices while simultaneously delivering a story that feels real and alive in terms of character emotion and setting there you go most wonderful can i say just one thing on that subject of he talks at the end about you know redemption and how you know no character son one thing that is very interesting about the film if you've seen it is in the third act the word sorry occurs several times and i cannot remember the last time that word was used so effectively in a film, it's used. I think it, I think it's three times, and every single time it really hits home. Well, I suspect this is a movie that we'll be talking about uh, for a while. I certainly hope Robbie so. Robbie and Sanjeev will have their take on it uh, yeah. next week, and then we'll come back and say the same stuff all over again. Well, over. one hopes that it will be in the top ten for long enough well, for yeah, that I'm to sure, be the case. Sure. And I, it, I mean, it really deserves to be. And it's worth saying as well that by the next time that we're together, the Oscars will have happened. 
wouldn't it? I mean, I love La La Land. I absolutely love La La Land, and I'm not having any of the backlash. But wouldn't it be wonderful if Moonlight won Best Film? It would. Well, it, it certainly. It's what does it what does it stand the best chance of? Mahershala Ali. Yes, um, but I, I mean, I you know, La La. At the BAFTAs, La La Land won Best Film, won Best Actress for... Moonlight got nothing. Moonlight got nothing. No, it got nominated, but it got nothing. Um, I, which, I think Mahershala Ali, I think, is... Because Dev Patel won Best Supporting Actor at the BAFTAs, didn't he? Mm. So I think Mahershala Ali is a very strong, very, very strong contender for a Supporting Actor for Moonlight. But, you know, I mean... <laughs> The thing is, all awards ceremonies are inherently foolish and ridiculous, and and how can you ever how can you compare movies that are so totally dissimilar? But wouldn't it be great if Moonlight won Best Film? Uh, so uh, that's the movie of the week, obviously. And uh, so Barry Jenkins and Keanu Reeves earlier. So this is kind of hu- huge contrast in our guests and the, and the and the kinds of movie that we're talking about. However, a number of people have pointed out the number of times that Keanu said John Wick. John Wick. So this from Henrik Hansen Yalding. It could be Henrik Hansen. Sometimes he said it without even being in a sentence. Sometimes he just went, John Wick. Quick question. Does John Wick say John Wick in the film John Wick Chapter 2 as often as John Wick says John Wick in the interview about John Wick Chapter (laughs) 2? Well, if you put them all together, it's like this. John Wick. John Wick. John Wick, 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 John Wick. There was all, there was that was <laughs> lyrical brilliant when none of those were repeated they are all actually 17 separate wicks can you play it again might get on you wick go on play it again john wick 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 if somebody hasn't turned that into a dub remix by this time next week i will be sorely disappointed wickedy wah wah wickedy wah 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 west um, very good. So uh, I think we're at that point where we get to DVD. There's loads of other things, but uh, we're running out of, you know, DVD of the week. Running out of what? Running out of beer <laughs> and money. Beer and money. Yeah. And never run out of beer money. That's true. Uh, but anyway, I think we might be, it's all nicely lined up now. So let's play that DVD of the week theme tune button. <laughs> Uh, I think we all know what Gary Sharon and Nuno Betancourt of Extreme were feeling when they sang la di da la di da 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 more than words. They were, of course, watching a brand-new DVD release, a format made for enjoying much, much more than words, also containing images, movement, colour and sometimes illustrated booklets. I miss those booklets. You can enjoy more than words this week with one of these brand new releases. What will be your DVD of the week? What will Mark choose? Paul Matthews says, There may be an army of Almodovar out this week, but I'm pretty sure that the good doctor will land firmly on the side of American honey. Me personally, I'd like to take another look at the crying game. There's that one with Bruce Willis as a ghost, isn't there? (laughs) Ryan Dalton Rodriguez. I think Mark's going to choose American Honey, definitely one of the best films released last year, and blessed with an amazing debut performance from Sasha Lane. Uh, Dan Cook. I would go for The Magnificent, A Man for All Seasons, but Mark, I'm sure, will either go for American Honey or I'm Not a Serial Killer. Rich Southby. Tempted to go with Inferno from a masochistic standpoint, but Mark will 
pick Free State of Jones is not perfect, but a solid entry from Mr McConaughey and proof positive that the McConaughey isn't quite over yet. So what is our DVD of the week? Well, I love American Honey, but I am going to go for I Am Not a Serial Killer, um, which is an adaptation of Dan Wells' uh, YA bestseller about uh, a young guy who has all these kind of predictors of violent sociopathy and is has to keep his personality in check and suddenly finds a killer in the neighbourhood in a story which is blackly comic and also you know, strangely vicious but funny but dark and natural and supernatural and unexpected. And it really didn't get the attention that it deserved in cinemas and I would like people to try and track it down on DVD because it's... I, a, a real surprise. It was one of the real hidden gems of last year. And much as I love American Honey, and I do, it got a lot of publicity and a lot of attention, and quite rightly so. But I Am Not a Serial Killer is one of those movies that is really worth seeking out. It touches of Donnie Darko about, uh, about the tone of it, which I, I enjoyed very much. Well, hey, Mark, I hope you have a lovely holiday. Holes, yes. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm still working, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll be thinking of you on your sun lounger. Probably. Which, 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 where's the sun that I'm going to get on the sun uh, lounger? I don't know, probably in the New Forest okay. or Narnia or something like that. So shall you watch Moonlight again over the time that I, we're, I, we're, yes. we're apart? Well, I think my, my next booking is to see 20th Century Women again. Oh, yeah. Which because is... that might disappear quite soon, I think, because yeah. it's not in the 10, so therefore might disappear. It is wonderful. And then I think it'll be um, compulsory Moonlight. It's funny, isn't it, that this award season has thrown up a surprisingly good array of films. I mean, there have been a number of films that could be often around the war season. It's just like, yeah, really? But there have been some really, really terrific... 20th Century Women is... I do... You're entirely right. I do feel a sadness that Amy Adams isn't nominated. Oh, yeah, no, this is absolutely ridiculous because she should at least have been nominated for one of those two performances. I it remember, goes back to Tom Ford saying maybe she'll split the vote because she's been so good in that and in Nocturnal Animals. So yes, well, yeah. I remember that when she was on the show, you said to her, you must be thinking Oscars. I know. I wish and I she hadn't said that. I, I was actually blaming you. OK. But, no, but, but, but it is that weird thing, isn't it? You see that before. You see her in Nocturnal Animals. You see her in, in uh, Arrival. Because when it was out, like, one was out the week after the other, wasn't it? And you just think it's... it's a, but that's absolutely the demonstration of the way it works with award ceremonies. If you're good twice, it confuses people. And I think there was a suggestion that at one point the film company were going to try and position her for Nocturnal Animals for for supporting actress and Arrival for lead... They were going to... But, Clearly, they just, there were two great lead act, lead actress performances, yeah. and exactly as Tom Ford said, I think that's exactly what it did. It split the vote. And it's not going to. I mean, Arrival won't win Best Picture. I don't suppose for a moment, but it would. You know, it would but be wasn't nice. it a wonderful film? It was, and so it'd be nice if Amy just goes up and says, "There you go. I'm having it. Thanks for yeah. it. <laughs> Thanks. You can get out. <laughs> Oi. That's my Amy impression. Shut. Is that how Amy Adams talks when she's not doing the voice up for film? Naturally. She's a Winstonian. When she came into the interview, before she started putting the voice on for the interview... She told me to shut it. Did she? And get out of my flipping chair. She said, I've had a hard morning talking about this science fiction film. And I've been talking about aliens. Yeah. So you can just shut it All and right. get out. <laughs> anyway, um, we're off for a bit because Mark is. And then we'll be back in a fortnight and we'll be... I love the fact it's my fault. Well, I'm It's still... half term in Hampshire. I am allowed to have half term. You are allowed to have half term. And I hope you have a lovely time on your half term lounger, lounging around. Send me a postcard. Yeah, and the rest. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. BBC.co.uk slash 5 Live.